Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell. The top of a sales funnel for a multi-level marketing company selling psychoanalytic cosmetics and toiletries. This week, we're covering Modern Man in Search of a Soul, a collection of essays written by Carl Gustav Jung and first published in 1933. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, born in 1875. He's best known for his theory of the collective unconscious, for his theory of types, which mutated into the Astrology for Dudes Maya Briggs personality test, for his concept of the animus and anima, and for inspiring Jordan B. Peterson to talk about petting cats. Jung, while also treating patients, wrote prolifically. We decided to cover Modern Man in Search of a Soul for this episode because it seems so apposite to life in much of the world today. In it, Jung seeks to find out why people feel so adrift and why there's such a pervasive feeling of hollowness to life. Problems which, despite being written about in 1933, remain relevant to the industrial world in 2023. A few admin things before we start. First off, I'm really sorry for the quality of my audio in this episode. My computer has been slowly dying for a while, but this process has sped up recently, causing some problems with the audio input. Second of all, if you like what we're doing with this podcast, we've got a Patreon account, the details of which are in the show notes. So, if you're ready to clean your room and learn the secrets of the unconscious, then listen on. Enjoy. So Jack, what do you have in store for us today? What do I have? Well, what do we have? What do Hopefully we have? It's not going to mean just me today. talking about Jung for a few hours. <laughs> this is just three hours of Jack ranting about Jung. Yeah, Levi will listen. <laughs> he put he he affects a uh, Jordan B. Peterson voice the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Levi nods sagely, but you're not going to be able to. Say <laughs> you do the Jordan Peterson listening face, but this is an audio <laughs> yeah, podcast. Put it on so no one can appreciate mm, it. Fingers up to the chin, <laughs> scrunched, furrowed eyebrows. You start crying and talking about the belly of the beast out of nowhere. (laughs) Well, you know, this really affects me. (laughs) Just, I saw this cat the other day and I just, I I thought to myself, geez, look at that cat. (laughs) Just so exquisitely beautiful to see such a cat as this on the street. (laughs) Yeah, I I never got into Jordan Peterson, so... My my view of Jung isn't run through in part the Jordan Peterson filter. Yeah, I got really into Jordan Peterson when I was severely depressed the other year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I like all of his lectures. I definitely have have criticisms of Jordan Peterson when he oh, yeah, when he's staying in his <laughs> lane or what I regard as like his lane when he's being helpful and being an internet dad. I think he can. <laughs> I think there are particularly lonely young men who have found real value in that. When he starts getting into politics, he he loses me. Uh, yeah, he has his moments. To, to be generous, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he leaves me behind. And then he he's got. I I really love his some of not all of, some of his interviews. He is a really good interviewer. Depending sometimes he has his moments, but then he's got some of the best interviews. On the internet, and then absolute, and dog he's got shit. some of the worst. <laughs> and there's this one that he has with um, is this the physicist one that you sent me? Yeah, where he starts trying to <laughs> mythologically understand quantum physics. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> he tries to like map the quantum physics criticism to like a, a psycho psych analytic psych 
co-therapy like understanding of like the human psyche or something it's just like and they're just talking past each other um mm, mm. yeah it was uh sir roger penrose oh yeah. shit. he's really <laughs> yeah yeah he's really he's a really interesting physicist really important contributor to theoretical physics <laughs> he also if from, people have heard him interviewed he just doesn't put up with much shit yeah like he'll just it's flat out tell edge. people that they're wrong yeah <laughs> so that was a really funny interview and then he, the same trip he was at oxford he went and tried to interview dawkins and it basically just turned to him just like borderline haranguing <laughs> rich dawkins like running down like the cobblestone paths of, of oxford like asking him random questions about his atheism or something <laughs> so he's, oh, he's, he's had his gone, ups and downs he's gone full <laughs> religious revival but in through the wacky filter through the jordan peterson yeah. wacky filter and then he'll put out like some really inter- in- interesting interviews of like climate skeptics and, and and stuff and it's like oh you did a really good job of this interview like come on man <laughs> i guess but then again if you're putting out as much stuff as he does you're gonna have a range of yeah, I think there's something to be said for quality control and for leaving certain <laughs> leaving certain things unpublished. It's okay to see something you've done and go, yeah, you know what? I'm not publishing that. He's famous enough. He doesn't need to be pumping out content. He's famous enough. He's probably making people will pay attention if he publishes and, stuff more, more infrequently money as well. Like he definitely could have a bit more editorial. To me, as someone who really hasn't spent that much time listening to or reading things that Jordan Peterson has produced, it just seems to me that as he's gotten more famous, he's gotten more wacky and a bit too self-confident. Like, <laughs> he probably does need someone tapping him on the shoulder every now and then going, listen, Jordan, just dial it back a bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I tried to watch his his series on um, the Daily Wire. He's got this series called "Of Dragons and Men" or something like that. Something mm. to that effect. And mm. I watched the first episode, and it's literally just—it's the It's just thirty minutes of him to the cameras, just straight on, directly looking at him, and it's him <laughs> sitting in his in like in his like regalia like his fancy suit and like the big fuck off chair and he's just like staring into the camera and he's just telling you what for he's just giving you a lecture for 30 minutes <laughs> how to be a man you know young men in this society they need to go out and go on an adventure and slay a dragon man <laughs> and i was like i don't need to watch another nine episodes of this <laughs> yeah that's why i've joined a bunch of ethnic conflicts in africa <laughs> just wanted to, wanted to experience life slay dragons Still didn't find any dragons, just found a bunch of villagers, unarmed villagers. <laughs> but we're here to talk about the original Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the OG JP. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, why are, we talking about, why are we talking about Jordan Peterson? It's because he's, is he still a Jungian? Does he still yeah, identify as Jungian? I would imagine that Jungian? or he would call himself something like post-Jungian or something. Something yeah, so. Because he's also interested in, like, other things. Yeah. Carl Gustav Jung, though, is a Swiss psychiatrist born in 1875. And when I say psychiatrist, he he was a doctor. He trained as a medical doctor. 
and then specialized in psychiatry and then started developing his own theory of of how the human mind works basically really interesting yeah i really really enjoyed this book person just a one of those people who kind of like Junger, how we were saying he just had like an incredible life and then ended up you, you you kind of mix an incredible life with a prolific creative output mm. and you just you get these these people like Junger or Carl Jung. I'm sure maybe you can think of some other people who have read who just have just really interesting perspectives on the world. Yeah. And Carl Jung is definitely one of those people. He was extremely well educated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. He, he, he like spoke or he like read or whatever, like uh Latin and like Obviously, being Swiss, he also like spoke a bunch of other languages, and then he spent like huge parts of his career like with different like ethnic groups around the world in Africa and like North America and stuff. And then he synthesized all of that with his like understanding of like mythologies and theology, and then also theory of mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he and did he, a lot over the course of his career. He wrote like 20, 20 books or something. He was also seeing patients through a lot of that too. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a clinical psychiatrist. There's, it was one of those guys who, like, I can just imagine he was probably just like on all the fucking time. Yeah, yeah, just relentless. Just like apparently one of he was those really lovely in person too. Where he's just like up at like six and he's in bed at like ten after like just jam packed day. The whole day he's just doing stuff, talking to people, reading books, <laughs> non-stop yeah, posting on TikTok non-stop. about how how efficient yeah. he's being and how optimized he is. <laughs> Shit posting on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in his in the five minute breaks between scheduled work sessions, he's a Twitter anon, just ch- continuous shit posting. What is it about those people, Jack? Why why is it not the shit posters? People like you, like what is it? Because you've got a good work ethic. Do you think it's like? I'm always skeptical. I, I don't think that like <clears throat> like uh, Carl Jung had a work ethic. I think he was just obsessed. And I think there's a difference between somebody who has a work ethic and somebody who's obsessed. Like maybe there's some overlap. But when I meet somebody who just seems completely obsessive, it doesn't. It almost doesn't seem as if they're working. Yeah, yeah. It's just this innate drive. In the same way that you don't regard it as necessarily work when you get hungry and eat. Yeah, they're yeah. they're heeding some deeper force within them. Something that's just and pushing pushing Jung to uncover the secrets of the unconscious. There's, it's not clear to me that if the guy had lived another hundred years, he would have stopped. Like, he would have kept on going. No, I think he would have gone on forever. Yeah. He's almost like a perpetual motion machine. <laughs> so, so long as his body is able to sustain itself, he will just continue trying, <laughs> trying to probe the Trying to psyche. unmask the deepest secrets of the human psyche. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty it, deep it mystery. We still haven't figured that one out. Yeah. We would no, have kept him going. occupied for quite a while. Yeah. Well, what we really need to do is to make make some sort of AI model based on Jung, something that you can run in parallel, like run 20,000 of them in parallel at 20 times speed. If you had hooked up in the Matrix, you know, the fields, the fields of human bodies, if they yeah, all just yeah, been the batteries. copy replicas of Carl Jung. Yeah. And their simulation was just a, a billion Carl Jung's trying to figure out what consciousness is from the inside of the matrix. They yeah, we're just trying to optimize for dream analysis. Universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make the most accurate dream analysis machine we possibly can. 
<laughs> yeah, so I am jealous of these sorts of people. I would like to find something in my life. I think I I think that like I'm optimistic that I could do that with um certain aspects of the book club from hell, hopefully. Um or something para book club from hell, like I know writing about something or building something or um how do you feel about your writing? Do you get like this with your writing? I wouldn't say I'm driven to to the point where Jung was. He was Maybe. he was just Are you on the scale? Are you on the I also wonder though, I haven't been doing it for nearly as long as he had, and I feel like these things True. have a snowball effect. It is it's is both there a habit that and a skill being books? able to to get that immersed in something you care about. Is there something that is there a thread? Do you th- like maybe you can't articulate it yet? But is there a thread between your three books or two and a half books? Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, that yeah, seems definitely. to be a common thing that you're exploring across. Yeah, yeah. I write books to solve problems for myself and to think things through. And yeah. clearly, I haven't thought all those things through because I'm still writing books about it. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so this particular book uh, by Carl Jung, <clears throat> uh, Mon Man in Search of a Soul, it's probably his, it's one of his three most famous ones. The other one is uh, Man and His Symbols. That's a big one where he talks about, like, the importance of essentially, like, cultural symbolism to, mm. like, understanding um, the human psyche. And he, in particular, I think that one he really he really unpacks this idea of the collective subconscious um, or the collective unconscious. And the other big book of his, that's probably the one that I'd be willing to read for the show as well. It's called the red book mm. Libra, Libra novice or something. That's a, that's a mammoth. Yeah. That's a mammoth. Um, really interesting. And this particular one, I guess we found it interesting. Or well, I always found this one interesting as one to read is because, uh, just the title alone, you can kind of hear what he's trying to get at. Modern man in search of a soul. Like, he's been dealing with this since the end of World War II, right? Mm. What, as a Swiss person, as a European, um, seeing the carnage after World War II in Europe. And yeah. then, Finally, like, World War I as well. He, and World he lived War through I. both wars. And then, like, dealing with the fallout of, of all that, like, and then being a psychoanalyst and a counsellor in Europe after the wars um, and the increasing secularization of Western Europe. Like, I guess he's trying to essentially figure out this deep spiritual problem that Western Europe was having arguably since Nietzsche, but definitely came to a head last century. And I don't think it's abated. I think it's actually just spreading to the rest of the world. Mm, Yeah, yes. And you can see it in the increasing rates of mental illness and the collapsing birth rate globally. It's something, yeah. <laughs> something from the West is spreading. <laughs> it's really unsettling and, people. And what's weird about it is it's against the tide of increasing living standards. It's like we yeah, have all this yeah. technology. We have plummeting rates of extreme poverty, even outside of like developed, traditionally developed countries. Like even in a place like I'm in Indonesia at the moment, and you know, like Indonesia is just having huge, like millions of people are becoming, you know becoming middle class over the course of like last couple of decades and at a rate that's like maybe not on par with like India or China, but still unbelievable. 
And yet, despite all these advances on a material level, then we just end up with a situation where it's like, well, we've got like a an epidemic of like self-harm amongst teenage girls and stuff like that. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Western modernity does seem to spread increased mastery over the physical world or over the, the exterior world, but at the same time, a, a void of meaning. And obviously you guys, you listeners out there, our lovely listeners, um, have not been privy to all of the conversations that Jack and I have had over the course of our life. <laughs> if you have, I <laughs> will be publishing would really those shortly like to know. Why. Uh, but like we've, this has definitely been a conversation that Jack and I have had a number of times about like what, <laughs> what's going on here. Why do I feel so empty? <laughs> this is abyss within me. And why won't Instagram and infinite amounts of sugar fix it? <laughs> <laughs> why don't porn and drugs make me feel better? I always feel more empty after I masturbate <laughs> to gratuitous amounts of horrendous porn. <laughs> Why do I feel empty? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Jen, Jen said, think they've they invented emptiness or cons- consumption enabled emptiness. Consumption let me, enabled. Let me tell you, we were raised. We've been by doing this since the fucking nineties. <laughs> you guys are amateurs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, we were around when MTV was still a thing. Right. Yeah, we caught the tail end of that. I mean, we were around when MySpace was cool. We've been having our sense of yeah. socialization fucked with for longer than you've been alive. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, cry me a fucking river, Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> Get used to the, the technological existential abyss that is the 21st century. Just get used to it. Harden the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. So someone like Jung, he was... I'd be really interested to know what he would think if he were transported to 2023. I think he would just immediately understand what the hell's happening. Because the problems, the problems he's describing in this book, many, many of them I, I see so clearly in, in my life. Fortunately, have I feel like my, my life is improving at a very rapid rate, and a lot of these problems are things that I see in the Jack in 2020, but not so much now. But it's very strongly correlated for you with how much uh, Mishima you've read, isn't it? Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just, ever since we Sun read Sun and Steel, Jack's, Jack's intense depression has uh, ameliorated since we read Sun and Steel. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's gotten really into katanas. <laughs> yeah, really into katanas and ritual suicide. <laughs> I, I traded lame suicidality for aesthetic suicidality. <laughs> Everything's much better. Now. Like Jack's just getting chiseled now, not because he actually feels better, because when he does it, he's going to look fucking young. <laughs> Jung would approve. <laughs> He'd take a look at that and go, "Yeah, that's fucking sick, mate." Yeah, man. Oh yeah, he'd start. He'd start speaking in a really strong Australian accent. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, right on, mate. <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah. I think he would immediately agree um, agree with what you just said no <laughs> with, <laughs> with um with the sentiment that the problem that he was working on can i say this problem the summary of the problem that he's trying to solve not just yeah in this please book, do it seems as though over the course of his entire career is he seems to be working on two 
they're either two separate but related problems or two faces of the same problem. I would probably I would say they're two faces of the same problem, which is <clears throat> the spiritual and psychological suffering of the individual and the spiritual and psychological suffering of the collective, in particular the Western mm. European mm. collective. But I think he was quite a worldly person. I think he mm. would understand that as extended out to the rest of the world of globalization. Yeah, he'd be pleased to see that that, that memeplex has spread beyond he would beyond to, Europe and the Anglosphere to the would, rest of the he world. He would love to see just the overwhelming rates of anxiety and depression in other ethnic groups as well. This <laughs> is our room. gift to you, say Western, <laughs> to the rest Western of the world. Europe. Enjoy. <laughs> to the rest of the world. Have fun Use with this. Use it wisely. <laughs> it's like... You know those 10,000-year-old mythological structures that gave you a deep sense of meaning and connection to the rest of the world? Yeah, none but of that. Those, we have Oreos. <laughs> we have Oreos and Aura Rings. <laughs> 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 Would you like that? Also, when we look deep into the space, we see nothing but emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that rich inner world that you used to have, well, we're going to steamroll that. We're going to replace it with advertisements and subscription services. <laughs> There is a void without and a void within. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So would you agree that that's two faces of the same problem? This, Yeah, yeah. And the psychological and spiritual can't really, in Jung's understanding, be separated. They're actually the same thing. Yeah, those are inseparable. And at a very deep level, the, the individual and the the collective psychic wellness are also indivisible. And he would even say that, like, the collective is to some degree a reflection. And I think you could come up with a line of causality in so far as, like, the collective is made up of individuals, so it's going to reflect what are the psychic states mm. of mm. the individuals or at least the majority of individuals in a, in a society. So he was working on this, and this is a very difficult problem, and it doesn't seem as though it has abated since he was alive and he was writing. No, it's, it's really accelerated. So he, he was writing this. This book's a collection of essays written over, I expect, a period of decades, but he was writing roughly mid-20th century. And if you can think that, roughly speaking, <clears throat> you have the decline in authority of the church and also the decline in, I, guess, I suppose, belief, like even if people were still going, there's this like rising scepticism and that sort of parallels the rise of communism and statism and that sort of stuff. At the same time, you have like increasing technological capabilities to like wipe each other off the face of the planet and cause all this destruction. And that's been going on in Europe <clears throat> since like the 1700s really and maybe even a bit earlier. And Carl Jung is basically like after the wars, like one of the people who's kind of just because of his interests and his education and stuff, just positioned to just like take on this problem. Mm, mm. And while, so I, I definitely don't agree with all of the things he says. I, I take him seriously because he seems like a highly intelligent Profoundly self-reflective and self-aware person making a humble modest. attempt to a yeah, modest, modest attempt to answer these things. And when I say modest, I don't mean insignificant, but truly aware of his own limitations and very forthcoming with them. 
And he definitely, most he definitely of the makes we've read claims. for this podcast have been profoundly arrogant, Deep, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply arrogant. Deeply arrogant. Yeah, it's so just, refreshing to read someone arrogant. who will just acknowledge, "Yep, I'm one person." These are views based on my personal experiences. These experiences might have pointed me in the wrong direction. The people who disagree with me are right in some respects. They're not terrible people. We're all working towards the same goal. It's so, it's just so nice reading someone who's it's, it's not seems an like a genuinely lovely person. <laughs> yeah, he's, he comes across as such a nice person in writing. Which, and apparently I mean, he wasn't might be in the real first life. Person. He was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and the interesting thing is he's <clears throat> modest but bold. Like, so just because yes, yes. he's modest in his effect or the way that he wrote about things and he's always giving credit to other people and that sort of thing, he still makes very bold conjectures about, like, the way that he thinks the mind works and the world works. Like, he, he wasn't – he didn't hold back in that regard. It was more like he's always willing to leave the door open to being wrong. Yeah, he would always make a jump. Yeah, and so that was really refreshing, and it also, I think, makes it somewhat more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Because I can kind of go, well, um, I disagree with you, or at least I think I'm going to disagree with you, but since you're willing to, like, since you're willing to pay homage to your, like, detractors and still man people and do all this sort of stuff, I guess it just makes it more, like, accessible and are more willing to, like, actually read it and engage with it. Uh, at least that was my response to it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. This is a this was a really good one. And my translation was nice. It was, like, nice to read as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, did you read the Routledge Classics version? No, I've got, I've got it right here. What was it? Oh, the Penguin. Must Have Books from Canada, right? Oh, I, I've, I've never heard of it, but that's okay. a nice edition. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's a collection of books and I should also preface that like, this is one of the things that I'm really interested in. Like, <clears throat> I don't know about Jack, I can't say I'm like, I assume you are, I think you are, but like, at least when I was younger, like a part of the reason why I studied like neuroscience is because I was into this sort of stuff. <laughs> and I thought studying neuroscience, I thought neuroscience would help. It kind of helped, but I think it's such a complex problem that like you need multiple perspectives on the stuff yeah yeah well it's the sort of thing where you don't know from which direction that breakthrough will come from so it's worth it's worth approaching the problem of of consciousness of subjectivity and so on from from many different angles yeah one of the things that flips me out the most is like when we when we were in medical school and we'd like go into the medical history museum because um like in medical school at least in my like until in Australia, until you're like actually specializing in neurosurgery or something, you don't actually get to handle like the brains or the head of cadavers. But like, um, at least in the medical history museum, like you could see like cross sectional like parts of brains and stuff. Um, and then when I was working in like a wet lab, like working with animal brains, it's just like looking from the outside in, it's a pile of tissues. And as we zoom in with microscopes or electron microscopes, we see like cells and then like molecular machinery or whatever, but we never see qualia. We never see subjective. Mm, we never mm. see the subjective conscious, like the, con- the, the contents of the subjective domain. And so from the outside in, it looks like any other organ, but from the inside out, well, it's our entire world. <laughs> like, yeah. 
and there's just this there's just this massive gap <laughs> and we have there's just no explanation of like what's going on here <laughs> yeah what's even wilder is whatever whatever fundamental building block or building blocks there is or are of the universe the brain is made from the same stuff as an asteroid it's the difference is the pattern or the configuration yeah, like of whatever that is h2o so and carbon and all that sort the of brain stuff. <laughs> is ultimately a a particular pattern of whatever the universal substrate is that just becomes self-aware. And that's why I don't it's, think that, it's, like... It's not fundamentally different to an asteroid in terms of what it's made of. It's just what this strange pattern that in at least one part of the universe has, has just turned around and started to look at itself. And it's like, just like so a... profoundly strange. That's why when I think that people, when they say it's like the, the brain is a physical system, and it is, but some people, when they say it, they say just a physical system. Mm, they say mm. this, they put in this, it's merely, or it's just a physical system. And it's like, no, 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 no. That, you don't just get to like fob off this, like, this is a profound mystery. How is it yeah. that a physical system can do this? Because to me, that just indicates that we don't understand physics. And we can't just say just because something's made out of whatever chemicals that therefore, oh, well, we can just reduce the conscious experience to just like the patterns of these neurochemicals or like these electrical signals. It's just like, no, we don't understand it. And like minimizing this problem just doesn't do it justice at all. Like Daniel Dennett, like I think is one of yeah, those philosophers yeah. who, who just says it's not a problem. And it's like, no, it is a problem. Like it's clearly a problem unless like the last time I looked at a fucking brain from the outside in, there's n- there's nothing there that should indicate that that thing should be having a subjective experience. Yeah, that there's a universe within. Yeah, so this is a really interesting topic, and I'm glad that we read Jung. Yeah, yeah. So should yeah, we actually that- get into the contents of the book? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. What you say? No, so I was just going to go and, and complain about the people who I regard as lazy in looking at how difficult that problem of consciousness profoundly, is. Profoundly And lazy. just say... Oh, well, they basically come up with reasons as to why it doesn't matter and they don't have to take the trouble of answering it. And they just say I it's an just, illusion. I see it as something. a massive cop-out. It's like, well, something is having the illusion. Yeah. The brain is having the illusion. And when I look at the brain from the outside in, I can't see the illusion. It's not like an LCD screen. Like, when I look from the outside in at an LCD screen, I see, like, the pixels emitting light and I can see the pattern. When I look at a brain at many levels of like magnification there is no qualia from the outside in (laughs) and to just say oh well it's an illusion doesn't help the situation at all Mm. and fucking sam harris does this as well he pissed me off about this as well and to the degree that the buddhists like don't take the problem seriously that they annoy me as well as much as i I love buddhism like it's like this has not been solved this is a serious problem (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and i I think there's a there's a reasonable chance that we may Inadvertently, we or may solve it. Create today. or create other beings, non-carbon-based beings, which also have qualia. Yeah, which and, will, which will make the problem even more pressing. Yeah, well, and again, I don't want to harp on about Deutsch. One quick Deutsch comment is Deutsch <laughs> makes this interesting. One, he makes this interesting point that he's like, of all the things that we create, we never accidentally create something before we've understood it, and so he's like. The idea that we're going to create artificial general intelligence with qualia before we actually have a theory of what qualia are and what general intelligence is, is just a pipe dream. It's like, that's just not going to happen. Like, we, 
we weren't able to like split the atom before we had a theory of how atoms worked and energy and all mm. that sort of stuff. And so for every other thing, that's a totally unrealistic explanation. And so it's like, but for the most complex, deepest mystery of all, we think that we can skip the explanation and go straight to the simulation. Is like, is that even remotely like when you actually just say it point blank like that? You just on the face of it, just seems like a completely ridiculous like thing to think that we can create AGI with qualia without actually understanding what it is in the first place. Mm, like, I we'll just accidentally that make it. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't criticizing you. I like yeah, I just no no I get now into I'm the, thinking about it. yeah yeah like I just get I get pissed because I study software right so like and I I really love like the AI stuff that's happening at the moment but then I see a lot of like pessimists like um like Hinton Jeffrey Hinton who he made some really important contributions to deep learning and stuff, but now he's like flipped his academic crap into like just like a speaking tour of pessimism where he's going around telling everybody about how we're going to create AGI and it's going to take over the world and stuff. And it's like, mate, you could, like how can you even say that when it's like we don't have a theory of it yet? Like we have a theory of deep learning and transformers and LLMs and stuff and their predictive models. That's very different to what's going on with general intelligence. Mm, mm. And it's and it's and again, it's. I would say it's for the same reason I get pissed off. It's like they're not actually taking the problem seriously, in the same way that like Daniel Dennett is not taking the problem seriously. It's like this is a really deep and hard problem, and we haven't solved it yet. <laughs> I'm gonna shut the fuck up. Sorry. Let's, let's <laughs> I'll let walk you go. through. Let's walk through the chapters of of this book or the the different essays contained in this book. Some of these I expect we'll spend a lot more time on. on than than others there were some that i didn't really get much out of and some that a handful that i got a great deal out of so yeah let's let's walk through and and stop where where we get interested chapter one dream analysis hey i love this shit (laughs) (laughs) so i i have never been convinced by by dream analysis not because i'm hostile to it i guess because i've i've never really thought about it to a great degree when like when pushed as you know this book made me do because i had to read a bunch about dream analysis i can acknowledge that we don't fully understand what dreams are doing and so you can't really dismiss out of hand that they're meaningful they could they could be saying something and will will i read into them to the same extent (laughs) jung does no I'm not going to go to the, <laughs> to, the, to the same level as Jung does, but it is really interesting him talking about them. And straight away in this chapter, he does preface it all with saying, okay, you've got to accept that the unconscious exists in the way that I set it out. And then you've got to, you've got to accept that dreams are somehow coming, emanating from the unconscious. And if you accept these things, then dream analysis basically proceeds as I set it out. So unlike, for example, who can we go with? Evola. Evola is a good example of someone who has first principles or these assumptions, but unlike Jung, he doesn't set them out. He just says, no, there, there is a world of being and a world of becoming. That's just how it is. Whereas at least Jung will say, okay, here are the things I'm assuming. Now we'll, we'll continue assuming these are true. And I much prefer that. I much prefer when people are upfront with their first principles like that yeah i i th- yeah the fact that he we should 
we should also preface that he's speaking against the backdrop of Freudianism or like the yeah, heyday of yeah. Freudianism. So like, is this essay written for the layperson or is it written kind of more for an audience of like psychoanalysts in the Freudian and post-Freudian traditions? Hard to say because Freud just took it as a starting point. I have never read Freud's stuff, so I don't know if he like caveats his anal- dream analysis stuff. But no, like- Freud. Freud Freud was many things, but he was not humble. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. And so, you know, like it's almost like the fact that he took the time to just even put in those caveats like is probably different to a lot of the people who's because I think he might have been writing in a context where like people just took it as just like, yeah, you can analyze dreams. <laughs> mm. Yeah, in fact, I would say that like a lot of like I've seen it in other cultures, right, where like especially if it's like a shaman or something, they'll like – literally say like well this person had this very intense dream and it means something oh yeah like roman history yeah the romans did it and uh and i love that aspect of roman history it's like the 12 caesars by suetonius quite a fair bit of the historical evidence will be like oh yeah here's a dream someone had when when julius caesar was born or something like that it's so good i wish i wish historians today were that cool and just used dreams as historical evidence Okay, so then that makes me wonder just how much of his is actually just like, <laughs> you know, who's that guy? Uh, um, I think a, a significant <laughs> portion of history is probably just made up. <laughs> it's completely fabricated. <laughs> just like reporting on dreams as if they were real events. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's, like, it's so good. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> just, it's just not even, oh, the, the dream not even like, happened. oh, yeah, it was kind of like maybe there's some truth in there. It's just it just didn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's super interesting. So, with that said, I've got a story to tell, mm. and I don't want to. Dom- Sorry, I'm aware that I might be a little bit too enthusiastic with this book. Cut in. No, enth- enthusiasm's good. That's good content. It's <laughs> all I care about. I suppose. Now. Yeah, I suppose if I did the opposite, it's just like completely unenthusiastic. Uh, I'd prefer <laughs> if he just clammed up, didn't say <laughs> anything. We just sit here for the just next grunted every now and then. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. 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 <laughs> um, so everyone's getting more Jordan Peterson like. Mm. <laughs> 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 um, so I uh, I uh, had a uh, would you call it a nervous breakdown? Like you were there for for it, like the other year. Uh, yeah, well, you were significantly S- depressed. Yeah, like something like mentally quite down, unwell, or like very unwell a few years ago, and um, and uh, for a number of reasons which I don't need to get into on this episode, but um, <clears throat> one of the things that I did during that period was I actually went. Did I ever tell you about this, Jack? I can't remember if I told you about this, but the the Jungian you went. I to? went to see a Jungian psychoanalyst. Yeah, yeah I, I have heard about this, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and so because I was getting into Jordan Peterson and getting into Jung, um, and I thought, wow, okay, well, maybe I'll go and see a psychoanalyst. Did I ever tell you that they weren't actually registered as a counselor in Australia, though? <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. Because <laughs> you probably knew I wouldn't have approved. <laughs> yeah, well, in hindsight, I don't approve. <laughs> I don't approve of a lot of my behaviour back then. But in particular, going and seeing an unregistered counsellor who is a self-identified Jungian psychoanalyst, I'd never verified if they 
did in fact have the qualifications that they put. But I'll take no, them just watch a lot of Jordan Peterson videos. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I'll take them for their word that at least they studied it in good faith, um, and that they would, uh, you know, like I mean, I fucking I don't know how much I'm just like so like get hard on about like everything needs to be fucking regulated, right? But you know, like I went there of my own fucking accord and um, to get this person's help, um, and uh, and. I would say my concern, having been the recipient or the uh, participate p- participant in this sort of tradition, is that I actually think there's a real risk that this stuff can add fuel to the fire. Mm, mm. And the reason I say that is because we don't understand it. We don't understand memes. We don't understand the mind. We don't understand qualia. And therefore, we don't understand the difference between qualia and the mind in waking state and qualia in the mind and memes in the sleeping state when those submodules of consciousness are isolated from your motor functions and your sensory inputs like we just don't understand those things and then you take like a mentally unwell person and put them in a context where there's somebody else who's using a sense ostensibly like pseudoscientific theories to try and interpret what for we could know are just it could just be like complete noise it might just be noise mm. and we don't have a reason to think that it might not be noise it might be meaningful but if it is just noise you could just be finding meaning in noise and then just reflecting that back to the unwell person and mm. my experience mm. was that i think it added fuel to my fire like you know, I don't. I to be fair to the person who I went and saw, like I, I think that like nobody could have helped me in that the state I was in. I think I was. Just, I just need to like the only thing that w- has helped and did help um, was just time mm. and mm. and like getting getting better um, through just like processing things and all that sort of stuff. And but I I actually genuinely think that like more harm might have been done. Than if I had just like not seen that person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In terms of the dream analysis too, because I mentioned earlier that because we predicated on this idea of yeah, un- the unconscious. Yeah. And you mentioned you mentioned before that we don't we don't have insight into what you know what's going on with qualia when separate from from sensory inputs, and they don't have you. It's not connected to your motor system because you're yeah. paralyzed when you're in REM sleep. Yeah. Jung Jung offers a a system of what is going on. Yeah. Why and don't it's we talk somewhat about fleshed out in this essay, but I think everything will be way more clear just for the the rest of the episode if we talk a bit about Yeah, let's do what that. he Yeah, what he roughly thinks the unconscious is. Cause he he separates the world into the conscious and the unconscious. And he says they're both as important as each other, but we focus far too much on the conscious. Because as as conscious waking minds interacting with the world, we can be misled into assuming that that is all the world is. But there's this vast subterranean universe, which you're not consciously aware of, but which is affecting your conscious life. Things bubble up from it into the consciousness all the time. Yeah. And it's only when that happens that you become aware of them. And it's in states such as sleep, where... We are we are more in touch with the unconscious, or in sleep, we're, it's totally unconscious. And then after sleep, the conscious mind can remember this unconscious life. 
which which we call dreams. And he both he assumes that what's going on that the unconscious exists in the way he says it does, and that the images and particularly the symbols he's big into symbols, the symbols that you see in it are meaningful for the consciousness. And yeah. you can't you can't directly change things in the unconscious. And things often go wrong in the unconscious, and that manifests as mental health problems in the conscious world. You, can, you can't directly affect them. You can only indirectly affect them through things like dream analysis by making the source of neuroses clear to the consciousness, and then they start to, to heal. And I think he had some profoundly important points. Like there was this one point. Which yeah, I, I don't want to give to the impression <clears throat> that I think this is frivolous. But when, no, when I no. say that these are assumptions, that doesn't mean they're strictly wrong. That just means that we haven't proven them yet. We haven't figured out. How they work out, uh, but like one one of the really wonderful, I think, assumptions. But I think it it will turn out to be he'll be vindicated with this. Is he said uh, neuroses can be understood as autonomous or at least semi autonomous, um, what he calls complexes, or I suppose what you you could say like they're autonomous sub psyches or something like that. Like they're a component of yeah, your yeah, mind yeah. that has some degree of autonomy and the conscious, the, the the thing that you might call yourself, like your ego or whatever, it might interface with this like semi-autonomous complex and that will cause like a neurosis. And I think his, him going out on a limb and saying that they're autonomous or at least sort of quasi-autonomous subcomponents i think was a really profound insight and i wouldn't mm, agree mm. on grounds on scientific grounds that have come out after his life but i think that was a really profoundly important insight yeah that there's not this unified or fully unified self and that all the things that go on within one's subjective experience aren't within the control of the thing that you call yourself yeah yeah which I think, like, subjectively, anybody would agree with. Like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty that obvious. certainly resonates with my experience of my my interiority. It's like anybody who has had issues with like an overactive, discursive mind, like with the emergence of meditation as a thing in the West. Like everybody's realizing, oh, I've got this fucking like <clears throat> thing, this voice in my head that's talking all the time and narrating everything, and I just wanted to shut the fuck up for like half a second. Like that thing there, mm. the fact that you can't just <clears throat> at a whim get it to go silent is a clear indication that there's aspects to your psyche that are at least quasi-autonomous of like your own will. Yeah. And for me to clarify, is it so when he's talking about complexes forming? Yeah. It's I'm pretty sure he says, okay, complexes are when you have this part of you, this part of your unconscious that's somehow walled off and becomes autonomous and starts acting perhaps contrary to the rest of un the unconscious and causing problems. Yeah. And those problems, that That's manifests itself in the conscious world as a neurosis. Yep. And when he says neurosis, he effectively means mental illness. Yeah. And with that a, could be anything this, this from, was, like, being struck with just, like, emotional turbulence or, like, having some, like you know, like obsessive compulsive thing or like issues in your relationship or like self-sabotage, like essentially anything where like you have some deviation from like normal health and it seems as though it's being caused by the person, but they're not like aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so in the context of dream analysis, he sees, he sees dream analysis as this way to understand the causes of the neuroses, so to find where in the unconscious and what is this complex, this autonomous part of the, the unconscious that's causing problems. So you can both, you can find out what it is through dream analysis and you can also treat it through dream analysis and then a series of other techniques depending on what, what the complex is. And it's interesting him talking about how he approaches dream analysis, how he acknowledges that. So, okay, so to begin with, he says that dreams are a physiological fact in the same way that you might, you might analyze someone's urine and look for, you can look for protein or leukocytes. This or is glucose, one of his bold blood, statements. A number of things in the urine. So too is looking at dreams and an objective thing. Mm. So what appears in the dreams is as objective as those findings on urinalysis, mm. but they're much harder to interpret. And he does, he gives a bunch of examples about of, of dream analysis and then his interpretations of them. And the predictive power he ascribes to dreams is, is significant. Very strong. In that I think there was, there was one about a guy who was having repeated dreams about climbing a mountain, but then being unable to continue, just getting so worn out. And this was a high-powered businessman, I think. And Jung eventually interpreted his dreams to mean that this man had reached his limit. The zenith of in his terms career. Of, yeah, in terms of his career, like how hard he was meant to be working, how high he was meant to ascend. And his unconscious became aware or was aware of this fact that he was pushing too hard before his consciousness had become aware. And in fact, his consciousness never did become aware of it. Hmm. And this man actually ignored he, Jung's advice and just yeah. kept, kept pushing. And was it he had a heart attack or something like that? Something like they that. eventually, yeah. Or was it that he literally died? Oh no, he climb. fell off a mountain. He literally died in a cl- on a climb. Yeah. On yeah, a climb. yeah. Yeah. And so through these symbols transmitted in the unconscious life, the unconscious was aware of a fact that the conscious mind wasn't and was I don't know to what extent you can ascribe intentionality to it. Was the unconscious trying trying to tell the consciousness or was the unconscious simply acting? It's just it's just spitting out these images because that's just what it does. Or maybe there's a concern, it's worried, and so it's Mm. generating these concerns that we're not being taken seriously by the conscious part of his personality. Yeah. He talks about the difficulties in analyzing dreams as well. He says it's often very hard because not only are you, not only are the patient's dreams being analyzed, but you as the, the treating doctor, the analyzer, you have your own internal life, which will be coloring how you view the patient's dreams. And then very quickly, the patient's dreams will come to incorporate you because you are an influence <laughs> on them as well, which meant, which means that he said you just going to become actually, entangled. <laughs> yeah, the first few dreams entangled. that you interpret are probably going to be the most meaningful ones because the longer you have a, a doctor-patient relationship with a patient, the more influence you're going to be having. And he regarded that as just noise. Yeah, that's such a tricky situation, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually your doctor is most able to interpret your dreams when they know you the least <laughs> quite early on. Yeah. There's probably an, there's probably an optimal point, some intersection between 
when the doctor knows you better, but you haven't spent enough time around the doctor for your unconscious to start spitting out images related to the doctor. Really interesting essay. I would say, I don't think he actually makes progress. I think this is like an ancient tradition or at least an ancient superstition or something that like people across cultures for millennia have been looking at dreams as a source of prophecy or understanding or psychological insight, that sort of thing. And Jung is trying to keep on doing that. My own, my main criticism, and I don't want to spend the whole book just criticizing because I really enjoyed the book, but like my, my main criticism is almost like it's like still putting the cart before the horse. Like he mm, just mm. need he, it would have been good for him or Freud or somebody to just like take a step back and just ask like, is this even a reasonable thing to do? Like, do we even understand enough? And in a way, like, he sort of, there's actually, he highlighted some assumptions, but actually there were more assumptions yeah. than he even realized. And so he's almost like jumped into, almost like, I think as long as we don't have a theory of qualia, any theory of dream interpretation is going to be doomed, in my estimation. Yeah, and in his defense, he does, quite often he does say, look, this is more, I guess, very empirical in that he's reporting all of these different findings of his and trying to fit them together in a a larger theory but it it is incomplete one thing i do want to emphasize though is that when he talks about interpreting dreams interpretation you need you need to regard the term interpretation Mm. in quite a specific way Mm. in that Mm. he talks about symbols in dreams but what he he doesn't mean that this is a facade hiding something else. He regards the symbols as a, that is the meat. That is the, the real thing in a dream. Yeah. I just want to quote, when a person has dreamed of a deal table, little is accomplished by his associating it with his writing desk, which is not made of deal. The dream refers expressly to a deal table. So he's saying these symbols in dreams, that is, that is the reality that you're interpreting. You're not looking at them as something hiding a deeper truth. They are the truth that needs interpretation. And I think that's, that's important to bear in mind when, just when we talk about his view of symbols more broadly later yeah, on. I, maybe I, I also just pull up a quote about, um, about the relation between the dream and the consciousness. He says, uh, at this point, the dream comes in as an expression of an involuntary psychic process, not controlled by the conscious outlook. It, the dream, presents the subjective state as it really is. It has no respect for my conjectures or for the patient's views as to how things should be, but simply tells how the matter stands. I have therefore made it a rule to put dreams on a plane with physiological fact. That's what Jack was saying before. So the reason why I pull up that quote is because his, this is like the autonomy aspect to it. And how would you say it? it's like the substance of, like there's this there's this like a uh, substantiality to the dream um, mm. and a really important point that Jack just brought up in addition or like these are all like related concepts, but like symbols enter our dreams through say like our culture and our also personal personal experiences, and interpreting those symbols is not necessarily straightforward. But it's also not just noise. Like the symbol 
can have deep meaning to it. And I, I would say that, like, again, this is like a very early attempt at trying to understand these things, these complex phenomena very deep, like, properly. I do think that that's actually one of his profound insights is like trying to understand the interaction between the individual's psychic world and like our, what I, I call in my head, I call it like our, um, the ideascape of our culture or like the, mm. the symbolic mm. landscape in which it's like we exist in, there's, there's really three environments in which we exist in. At least there's at least three environments that we exist in. There's one our our brute physical environment, like the actual matter, the actual like the gravity, the the hard solid things, the fact that like if mm. I if I jump off like a three meter ledge, I'm gonna break my legs, that sort of stuff. <clears throat> but then there's also and this is one of Dawkins like key contributions to like our species, is he identified that from the point of view of the gene, the key other environmental thing that other genes are conf- that genes are concerned about are actually the other genes <laughs> like they're competing against one another and so like yep, yep. they care about i'm this gene i'm competing with that gene over there and so they're not just concerned about like the the chemistry of their environment they're actually concerned about the information content that's instantiated in their environment which is to say they're concerned about their other gene the other genes in the gene pool <clears throat> so we have those two levels to our environment that we care about in terms of survival. But then the other level that we care about, and this is like a Dawkins slash Deutsch slash, like I also think like you could read Jung into the, you could, act, you could like I think a lot of what Jung says is consilient with this idea, mm. which is like mm. the idea that the other aspect to the human environment is we have a meme environment or an idea environment. That is, <clears throat> there's a plane or a realm of like these entities, which the broadest word would be like the ideas that exist in like a society. And those ideas in so far as they cause people to behave in certain ways actually present like a selection or like a threat mechanism in the environment. So like a really profound part of this would be like, if you go to uh, a part of the world in which like there's ideas of like say state control or whatever, or like that this group of people are less than this other group of people and can uh, and it's you're allowed to commit violence against them like the factor that's making that environment safe for people is the ideas that exist in that population and so it's correct or it's consilient to say that like we have a physical environment we have a genetic environment our bodies have a genetic environment but our we also have an informational or an idea environment that we exist within and that we're, we're trying to survive and thrive in. And that idea environment is largely made up of very complex symbols in our culture, as well as like explicit information transfer, like our conversation right now. Mm, mm, yeah. And Jung was, he was an early person to realize this, at least in the Western European tradition. Like he, he soared very deeply into this, even if like maybe yeah. he couldn't quite get it to the point where he could, really i don't know like there's something there's almost like the way that i put it when i read it is because he didn't have 
that understanding of modern information science where we can now say like, well, like information actually needs to be physically embedded on a physical substrate like my computer chip and like it transfers like via waves over like some medium or whatever. Like he didn't have that physics exposure. He wasn't able to like bring his semiotics and his understanding of all this cultural stuff into like, okay, how does that actually interact with the physical world? But notwithstanding that, like, I mean, he just, his insight into that symbolism stuff is profound. Sorry, I've been talking too much. <laughs> no, no, you haven't. Uh, I'm trying to give what words you're saying. To it, what my and those, about. <laughs> that idea scape for Jung really sits in the unconscious. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I it would agree with that. It almost seems like for him, like the, so for him, the conscious and the unconscious interpenetrate and they're, they're compensatory, which will become what's well, important now, but we can go into a bit more detail on that later on. But to probably a larger extent than in the conscious world, those, these ideas reside in the unconscious. And yeah. in consciousness, it's almost those ideas come out of the unconscious and instantiate themselves in the world. Yeah. And that's just such a fucking crazy thing to think about. I think he's right. Yeah. I, th- I would agree with him. He, okay, this is how, but I'd say, like, he was right at, at one level of analysis, at a very high abstract level of analysis, but he didn't quite have a, a sense of, like, how to account for the mechanism, which we still yeah. don't, but we're sort of making progress. And so he's talking at a very high level of abstraction. Yeah. You need people to point the way. And I do. Th- I think he he did make real contributions. He made in that respect. And when you just think like, okay, so we exist in this ideascape. Maybe you'd call it like the collective subconscious or unconscious. Is what he maybe what it, maybe when I say like the ideascape, that might be roughly the same idea in Levi's language for what Jung is talking about with like the collective unconscious. Like there's this realm of like ideas, which we're not always consciously aware of, but which we're soaked in all the time. And that can percolate up into like our conscious mind and affect our behavior kind of from beneath, so to speak. Yeah. And interesting, you brought up Freud earlier and the intellectual environment within which Jung existed. One interesting part of this chapter, and it pops up a few times in the book, is that Freud had this view of the unconscious as basically like a tyrannical toddler. Just yeah. this this fucking monster that really just unhelpful. wants to be yeah, sexually gratified. And when when I say toddler, like Freud to a large degree seemed to sexualize children as well. So it's not it's not an accident when I talk about it's 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 like a toddler and also just the level of sexualization present in the unconscious he just viewed it as this monster that wanted to be really unreasonable to an unreasonable degree sexually satisfied given food kept warm and that's about it yeah and jung was at pains at several points in this book several points of this book to point out that the unconscious is not the monster that freud made it out to be and the reason why i think it, it was just just because Freud and Jung and psycho psychotherapy in general was more front of mind mm. in the mid mid twentieth century when he was writing than it is now, at least in most of society. People were were much more uncomfortable or scared of of the unconscious. They were frightened that 
if you did too much psychotherapy, for example, mm. the unconscious might be unleashed and you'll just turn into this wrecking ball, just a complete liability. Whereas Jung really disagreed with Freud in that, and he said, no, the unconscious is not this tyrant like that. It is compensatory, so it and the consciousness seem to be trying to always establish or maintain some sort of equilibrium. So Almost like a psychic homeostasis or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So if the conscious if the conscious world is overemphasized, which he said in modernity it certainly is. <laughs> yeah, fair. If it is overdeveloped, then in some way the unconscious to compensate just becomes more and more and more primitive and more like the, this terrible child. And he felt that Freud I think his key disagreement with Freud was that he said Freud only viewed the psychic life pathologically and then extrapolated from observing pathology to healthy minds. Yeah, his other... And so he felt... His, yeah. his other oh, so criticism... Go on. That's true. So his other... Uh, an extension of that criticism was that it was not only a pathology, but a particular type of pathology, a, a sexual yeah, 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 pathology. Whereas, like, he also talks about Adler, who was one of Freud's pupils who mm. also pathologizes human sexuality but only looks at it through the lens of power-based psychopathology. So yeah, Jung yeah. sort of says, like, yes, it can be pathological, but it's not only pathological. And to the degree that it is pathological, it might not just be sexual or power-based. It could be something else. He seems to view the unconscious primarily as this place where these these deep symbols present in every human reside. And he called them <laughs> so archetypes. Freaky. So freaky. <laughs> yeah. Such a freaky idea. And he spent, he spent a lot of time, not so much in this book, he did a little bit of it, but he spent a lot of time during his life trying to elucidate these various deep archetypal symbols present in the human unconscious. And my... Like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't feel confident on my definition of the collective unconscious. So, or at least my understanding of his idea of the collective unconscious. Jung had this concept of the collective unconscious, which I interpreted to mean basically this entire repository of symbols embedded in human unconsciousness, which are shared between people. I don't think he meant that we are all yeah. psychically linked to each other but that rather each of us has this unconscious mind and in that unconscious, in all of our unconsciousnesses exist these deep fundamental symbols yeah. from which grow our cultures and our conscious selves, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I, I think so. Unfortunately, in this book, he doesn't unpack it too much. The book, yeah. if we wanted to really get into it, would be Man and His Symbols. I'd be very open to doing Jung again because I really, I actually enjoyed this, which is rare for the podcast. Yeah, and it's also just, it's, it's also really weird. Like, it's, it's still it's pretty strange. It's very strange. <laughs> it's because Jung, particularly because of Jordan Peterson, so it'll be a narrow band of people who think more about him, but Jordan Peterson has definitely popularized him with a certain group of younger people. But even though it's more mainstream because of that, Jung is still fucking weird. It I mean, how many people strange. actually put in the fucking effort to read Jung after they've listened to Jordan Peterson? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's part of the reason, too, why I think it would be valuable, or it is valuable to do an episode on Jung, because 
I hear Jung talked about a lot by people that I'm not convinced have actually read anything by Jung. I I haven't read much by Jung, so I'm only marginally better than those people, but I also don't claim much of a deep knowledge of him. So in addition to, yeah, we'll read one book, an expert. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I've read. I, I've read. Uh, there's a root ledge edition about masculinity. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this is your second, elements of masculinity your or something second like that. book that you've read of Jung's. Yeah, so you're an expert. Yeah. Yeah, I'm an expert now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, No, I've really I've really decided that it only I need to get a book. Canadian accent and weigh <laughs> into the transgender debate in a big way. Um I think I don't cry enough on camera. I'm just not into I'm not into tranquilizers in nearly the same way that I could be. <laughs> Um, this must be some sort of archetype, but I feel a deep and unconscious desire to pursue these various things. The Kermit the Frog archetype, I think I'll, I'll call it. Really lean into. (laughs) Yeah. Need to lean into that. Uh, the only additional thing that I'd say about your rough sketch of Jung's idea of the collective unconscious is that my perfectly accurate sketch yeah. <laughs> of ideas, you mean is that he also views it um phylogenetically in or like analogous to yeah, like phylogenetics yeah, yeah. so like phylogenetics and, and you know like there's some criticisms of this idea like but roughly speaking if you think that like <clears throat> uh we share like very old genes with like very distant uh distantly related um, organisms. So, like, say you take, um, say, a fish and a human, we have, uh, I think it's called axial symmetry, or is it is it called axial symmetry or linear symmetry um, or whatever? Like, yeah, we, the, we do have axial symmetry. Yeah, yeah, axial symmetry. Yeah, so axial symmetry versus, like, an octopus that has, like, radial symmetry. Um, and, like, we have axial symmetry, and actually, like, the genes that encode for axial symmetry, not merely axial symmetry, but also, like, which side of the body organs are aligned on that sort of stuff we share those genes with say like fish and reptiles and stuff and they're in the parlance of like genetics they're highly conserved so they're very old genes and they're very so they're very highly conserved they exist across many species um for in the case of these sorts of genes they're probably hundreds of millions of years old um because like i think even like crabs and like crustaceans would have like axial, um, and to, as far as I'm aware, th- this is not convergent evolution. This is actually like we all just share the same genes for axial symmetry with these other species. So <clears throat> we've inherited from like our ancestors this these genes, and like the older the gene is, the like the more they're shared amongst more species, and like the deeper in our quote unquote deeper in our genome they are. Um, whereas like newer genes. Oh, and also older genes tend to be like more stable as in like they won't have as much variation. Whereas like newer genes, younger genes will be shared amongst fewer species and will have higher variability between like um, or greater, greater, greater amounts of variation within the gene pool. Um, if you kind of map that idea, roughly speaking, to like the human psyche, what Jung is saying is like, there's some ideas or some memes or like some symbols that are very old. They're very, very old symbols. And because they're very old symbols and they're very important, they have low variability and they're highly conserved across cultures. And so they extend very deep into our ancient past and they've been conserved across like cultural evolution throughout human history. 
and that would be things like the mother symbol, fertility god symbol, yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a. I still don't know if you can say whether or not that's true or false, but it's such a profoundly interesting idea. I like, I it's such a fucking crazy idea. Yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. basically my position on it. Is like, I'm pretty sure there is a there there that there's there's something to it. Just the fact that <laughs> it, these symbols do pop up. I don't know if they pop up in every civilization, but they, they are so <laughs> common that there's there's probably something going on. And the mechanism for. So, like, if, if, if ideas are competing in the way that we've sort of talked about before for basically replication in human populations, then if a symbol, even if it's a low-resolution symbol, has managed to survive replication for tens of thousands of years across many cultures all over the face of the planet under different environmental conditions, it's basically that saying that there's something in that symbol that for whatever reason, humans want to keep on reinstantiating in their cultures. You could, yeah. There's something very competitive about it. Whether that's because it's it's this true fundamental symbol sitting in our unconsciousness, I don't know. But it's there. some some mechanism is making it arise repeatedly in different cultures, which don't necessarily have contact and then with each that'll other. That'll come up in your dream. And then I guess the one of the bolder jumps that Jung makes is to say that, well, we can interpret that in some sort of meaningful way when that symbol appears in somebody's dream. Yeah. So in terms of the next chapter, problems of psychotherapy, I don't think, like, it's an interesting chapter, but I don't know how much there is that would be fun to discuss on the podcast. He does... He talks about interesting stuff. It's more about the technicalities of how he treats patients. He talks about... Yeah. He talks about how um, repressions form, how you keep a secret even from yourself. And he seems to think that keeping any sort of secret that is not part of a broader group is really unhealthy. So a, a completely personal secret. You, you hide that from the rest of society and it leads to problems within yourself. And neuroses arise when you keep a secret from your conscious self, and that that becomes a complex that walls itself off from the rest of the unconscious mind and becomes this autonomous piece of um this autonomous piece of your unconscious which causes a neurosis. Interestingly, he does Jung is broadly speaking, I think, quite pro-social in that he says that secrets kept with other people are very, very healthy and lead to a real sense of belonging. He talks about secrets kept, as opposed to a purely personal secret, secrets kept within a secret society, or secrets kept as part of initiated groups. So if you have a group of people, say, young men in a group versus older men, if they have some sort of initiation ritual of manhood, after which you learn these secrets of of the male group of whatever group of people more broadly, you exist in, those are really healthy and let you situate yourself within a society. But, yeah, that that is interesting in this chapter. What else do you talk about? He talks about the problem of transference, which is an issue in being treated in psychotherapy, where transference arises when you have unresolved 
parental issue. You basically have mummy or daddy issues where you project the archetype of the parent upon your doctor and then start relating to the doctor Mm. subconsciously as you would relate to your parent. And Jung talks about ways to break that, basically, to make you, as the patient, stop projecting the parent archetype onto your doctor and and event, and become psychically more healthy. When we talk about the stages of life, which is a chapter I really do want to talk about, because that was one I found very profound, um, it, we, we'll go into this more. Yeah, this isn't the most interesting chapter, but maybe one yeah. of the things that we could talk about briefly is projection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's a really important, like, I, as far as I'm aware, Freud was the person who came up with the projection. Yeah, this is a Freudian concept that Jung liked. And Adler, so, okay, so Adler, Freud, there's some other interesting psychoanalysts and early psychologists and stuff who have their own flavors. But if you think, like, Freud is, like, patient zero, <laughs> so to speak, of this idea, and... <laughs> Projection, roughly speaking, is like when you take some like aspect of your own personality or like idiosyncrasy in your own psychology and you use uh, like interpret somebody else or some other situation as having that aspect um, without necessarily acknowledging it within yourself. So like the classic is was that too ambiguous a way of putting it <laughs> it's like, maybe you can sharpen up what i, what I just said <laughs> or maybe it's better to tell it concretely with i think everybody kind of knows what projection is i think it's used enough but like the classic yeah i think it would be if, like if you have some problem yourself you begin to, or you you're you lying in, in others without acknowledging it in yourself yeah, so like um, the the one that Freud seemed to be obsess- obsessed with was the Oedipal complex. Yeah, it's because he was a fucking pervert. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the flip side of the Oedipus. Can you imagine what Freud would have done if he lived in the time when he could just access incest porn on the internet? Oh, he'd be in prison. That would have just <laughs> blown his mind. He like he would one hundred. He would never be leave his coom den on a f- oh, yuck, <laughs> oh, yuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, such a gross picture. I didn't need that in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'd be the sort of person who'd definitely be on a watch list because he, especially if you just take like, <clears throat> if you just use. Freud's own arguments. Okay, so what's the Oedipal complex? Oedipus was this myth um, about like <clears throat> basically uh, falling in. Lo- so Oedipus fell in love with his own mother and killed his father, and, to, and and had sex with his own mother. And there's, I think there's actually a female version of it. I can't remember what the female analog of it, which is basically the same thing, um, except it was like a daughter killing her father. Uh, killing her mother or something like that. Um, and it sort of highlights. Oh, there's this mythological structure to basically like. One, um, a boy having issues with his own father and resentment towards his own father, and two, having sexual lust towards his own mother. And the interesting thing is, like, and I think Jung kind of has a bit of a cheeky go at this in this book, is, like, you could just apply oh, that. Repeatedly. It's like, why don't we just interpret Jung's, I mean, interpret um, Freud's own, like, he saw this in all of <laughs> in all of his patients. Maybe... It was 
Freud who had this fucking issue, <laughs> which I would say is like That's more likely. If if you take the idea of projection seriously, then I mean, <laughs> come on, <laughs> Freud kind of laid it out for you. Yeah, is <laughs> like basically his whole career is basically him just admitting to being a filthy old being man into mummy porn. Yeah, yeah, I, he didn't seem like a particularly nice person either. Um, no, he sounded like an asshole. Yeah, and then and then Adler was his like most famous pupil, who basically took the idea of projection, except instead of saying it's to do with sexuality, he said it's to do with power, like the will to power, and. Um, yeah, and I think Jung basically says that projection is a thing, but it's it's just not it's not one dimensional. It's not just about sex, and it's not just about power. It could be about other things. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, and it's it is really interesting. He does. He doesn't say that Jung or Adler are completely wrong. What he says is that they they're looking at one particular type of pathology and then just generalizing it to everyone. And he says it doesn't fit with everyone. He, yeah. he happily acknowledges that, yeah, there are some patients who, who are well described by Freud and I treat them more or less as Freud might treat them. That's just a subset of patients. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the overgeneralization fallacy basically. And Jung has a much more, I, I suppose, nuanced, is willing to say like there's other types of projection and not all neuroses manifest themselves as projections. It's just like one flavor of things that can go wrong. What about the aims of psychotherapy? Is that a very in- was that a very interesting chapter? I think the most the most interesting chapters are, might be the theory of types because so many people are into the Maya Briggs and this is I'm pretty sure this is just where the Maya yeah. Briggs comes from. So one of his essays was a psychological theory yeah. of types. Yeah. Where he starts to talk about like introversion, extroversion, literally like the Myers Briggs things. He talks about introversion, extroversion, what's the other like sensing, thinking or whatever, feeling, perceiving, and something else. Yeah, he basically he from so he said this is from clinical experience. So from talking to lots and lots and lots of different patients, he began to notice patterns in their personalities. Like perhaps thousands of patients, maybe? At least hundreds. Yeah. He felt that he could he could divide people up along these two axes. So you have the introversion, extroversion axis, and you have the what is it? It's um thinking and feeling. So multiple axes. So you have Introversion, extroversion is one axis. Thinking, feeling is another axis. Sense, sensing and intuiting yeah. is the third axis. And he situates people on these axes. I think Myers-Briggs has four or five. Maybe they added something. or, But, yeah, they were basically just repackaging Jung's ideas. Yeah. And so introversion, extroversion... Probably don't need to explain that too much. I think most people have an intuitive idea of what that is. Yeah. A definition I liked is that it's not that, for example, extroverts like being with people, introverts dislike being with people. It's more what you find relaxing versus tiring. So someone who is extroverted will feel energized by being around people. Someone who's introverted might enjoy being around people, but does find it tiring. Yeah. I think, yeah, most people, most people have a good feel for what that means. Yeah. In terms, in terms of thinking and feeling, I guess you can think of this in some ways as like a rational versus emotional way of analyzing 
the world. So people who are thinking tend to preference more more walking through problems using what I guess some would call their their rational mind, whereas or cognitive. feeling people yeah pay more attention to to the emotions evoked by a situation yeah. or an idea or by another person. So where you sit on this axis is where you where you place more emphasis when you're interacting with the world. Do you place more emphasis on the ideas, how you intellectually uh, interface with the world or or with the emotions evoked in you by situations? Yeah, which is a... I guess I, yeah, don't. I guess one thing, one thing complicating what I just said, and a caveat I do want to give is, he does say very strongly that it's not like feeling is irrational and thinking is rational. And I did use the word rational before, so that's that's my my mistake. Feeling is as rational in that he says, "Ah, oh, well, you are you're responding to these powerful emotions, and that is rational." That the the emotion is the stimulus that you're reacting to. And so if a situation makes you feel really bad, then responding to that emotion, that strong, bad emotion, is rational. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I think given that um, just so many people have probably done something like the Myers-Briggs, everybody's probably uh, somewhat familiar with it. I guess... The interesting thing is, like, how did he come up with with this idea? And essentially, like, yeah. the way that he came up with it is he just wanted to be able to essentially create almost like a, a what well, I said, like types or ontology or a categorization schema for different personalities. And this, like... I think even in this essay, he's quite tentative about this, and maybe that's what I'd yeah, like to just. Yeah, he's much more tentative than the Myers Briggs stuff. The Myers Briggs, or like anybody after him, basically, like it's interesting. You actually read the progenitor of the idea, and he's basically like extremely tentative about it. Like this is just me synthesizing my personal experience of my psychotherapeutic practice, and. Uh, you know, like, I'm not really sure if this is, like, here's some issues with it and, you know, like, I'm not really sure if even introversion and extroversion is the right way to put it because I can always think of, like, an introvert who acts in differently in different situations. And it's like, and then you just, like, look at Myers-Briggs and it's just like, yeah, you just take this fucking questionnaire and we'll fucking tell you what bucket you're in. <laughs> and this is, like, what, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what you career... You can also do it on the internet. And what career you should think about and, like, how you'll act in different social situations. <laughs> it's, it's like, what? How did they, how did they turn this incredibly like hedged modest like synthesis of one's personal practice like professional experience into like this huge like personality industry i think it's just like modern astrology essentially yeah yeah it's dude astrology <laughs> dude astrology yeah, yeah or like um or yo pro astrology <laughs> like join it <laughs> you know like we're gonna help you uh you've just joined like some fucking i don't know startup <laughs> and in order to improve your teamwork you've got to like figure out what everybody's mbti is <laughs> yeah it's just like the rpgification of personality <laughs> yeah everybody in this like- worldview is an npc 
Yeah, so yeah, what were the sort of what what did you roll? <laughs> what did you select in character creation? And and you're playing Fallout New Vegas now. <laughs> Where are your stats? And I, I'd say like just actually comparing Jung to what it's evolved into today is just like there's a very big disconnect because Jung is not yeah. that prescriptive about it. <laughs> yeah, because when you say that this this essay is very hedged and tentative. I think it goes even further than that in that the this whole essay is phrased in the way that it is him thinking through how do I classify yeah. personalities and is that even something useful to do? Yeah. And it's almost like he's he's throwing out suggestions of, oh, well, you could do it along these three different axes. That might work, but it has its own problems. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah, he's 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 just putting an idea out there <laughs> and it's turned into this like <laughs> this behemoth of a fucking industry. Like you can literally like there's entire and there's not just MBTI, there's like different there's like this personality will thing, there's like different types of all sorts of uh like personality and communication style like categorization schemas and stuff. And some of them uh more or less have some sort of like at least attempt at rigorous scientific explanation um some of them are just straight up quackery but people love this shit <laughs> people love it corporate oh, corporates yeah. love yeah, it yeah, team yeah. building stuff like there's a huge industry where you, like there's consultants who'll come into like teams at companies and stuff and like run them through these like psyop tests <laughs> <laughs> try, try to wait wait out the weaklings <laughs> and it all started with just this incredibly modest like maybe this is something that could be useful <laughs> nah nah he he didn't understand how much he could scale this and monetize Fuck, this man there's this um and that's why i don't take young seriously 16personalities.com it's like a, it's like it does a shitload of money. I think like did I see valuation for it? Oh, maybe I didn't, but I imagine that they're just doing unbelievable amounts of money. They charge like a hundred bucks to do a test or something like that. We really should get into monetized online quizzes. <laughs> Which book club from hell author are you? <laughs> Jack and I. Actually, twenty bucks you can find. Jack and out. I start getting into really okay. If we start getting really into fire, <laughs> you know, financial fire. Um, what is it? Uh, <laughs> FI retire early. Financial independence retire early. Um, young fire. That's right. This <laughs> is a fucking bunch of, basically just a bunch of like overzealous North Americans getting really into money. <laughs> yeah, just buy some rental properties. Okay, if Jack and I start hocking online quizzes about personality types or anything like that, you know that we've gone way into financial yo, young fire. <laughs> Get that fuck off money. We're just trying to break through free. You know, I reckon we could like trying to get out of the matrix. We could uh yeah, I was literally just about to say Andrew Tate. We could position ourselves as like <laughs> esoteric Andrew Tate. <laughs> I get into kickboxing. <laughs> yeah. Move to Romania. <laughs> I think yeah, you'd you'd fare well in like uh wrestling. I don't know if I don't know if you've got the the legs for kickboxing, mate. <laughs> I, think, I think stick stick to the gr- the ground game, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is basically obligatory now. Obviously, people on the internet haven't seen your body, but Jack's Jack Jack's bit of a bit of an animal. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't know if kickboxing would be his his strength if he, if he's get into a fight. Look, I get around on four. Take, legs. It, take it to the ground, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Just be heavier than everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, yeah, really interesting essay though. Um, it's it's kind of funny to see like in this book have the time the time. Sorry, in this podcast in this podcast i feel as though we've read a couple of times like the ground zero or the patient zero of an idea and it's very yeah yeah like the doctrine of fascism yeah and it's very interesting to see just the gulf that exists between like where the idea starts and then what it has evolved into now after say like 100 years of replication and variation Mm, mm. oftentimes too when it gets run through the monetization filter or when it gets run when people through. have worked out how to make money off the idea, that's when that's <laughs> yeah. when rapid evolution takes place. <laughs> just pour fuel on that fire. Just pour some. <laughs> you know, it's just like some American just realizes that they can repackage it and scale it on the internet or through infomercials. Yeah, it just goes off. Like fucking Tony. I bet you Tony Robbins is like partially to blame for this. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no really direct evidence. The, the, to- the Tony Robbins of the Unabomber Manifesto. <laughs> how do we? How do we scale that? How do we scale and monetize the Unabomber Manifesto? <laughs> scale Penty Linkler. <laughs> Are any of the ideas that we've covered particularly scalable? You need to make you need to scale Penty Linkler and make make him make him the sort of thinker that appeals to McKinsey consultants. That's the goal. I That's, think McKinsey you consultants. You know you've won. When McKinsey starts offering consulting services on eco-fascism. <laughs> well, that's ESG, isn't it? They have been doing that already. Actually, yeah. yeah. That's they, figured ESG. Out, they figured out how to repackage Linkler into something that's a nice three-letter acronym, sell it to BlackRock. They got the anti-human aspect of it. I just, I feel like they're not going hard enough on the population reduction side, but... They'll get there. They'll come yeah, around. They'll get there. They'll get there. <laughs> So should we go on to the... When, when pleasing Mother Gaia becomes a pressing enough concern. <laughs> you know, it's just like, thinking about that, I was recently, I was recently at a, uh, an event. I won't say it wasn't. I was at an event where I came into contact with a large number of people in the legal and consulting professions. And... Just the number of people who would make offhand comments about the world getting worse because of capitalism is astonishing. And you listen to them talk. From and fucking think corporate like, lawyers oh, and shit. Oh, Get off it. Where do you work again? Where do you work again? Oh, you work for Bain. Oh. Right. The bastion of anti-capitalist <laughs> proletarianism. Incredible. Tell me more about how capitalism is ruining the world and how excessive privilege is damaging everyone. <laughs> While you're on fucking six figures from a, from a from, management from, consultancy firm. They're literally... You piece of shit. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> it's just that it is, it is just champagne bourgeois misanthropy. And it's just so fucking lame. <laughs> tell us, tell us how you really feel, Jack. <laughs> no, it is... I feel like listeners are slowly accumulating like a list of things that make us angry. And for me, like, something that will reliably set me off is someone in an industry which exists to to make as much money as it to can. serve all to serve to serve all of the interests of a class that this particular employee will profess to hate, 
they'll talk about like, oh, I hate, I hate capitalism. I hate white privilege. I hate the West. I hate Christianity. And it's just like, okay, well, what are you doing? You're making money for people who just tick all of these boxes. While oftentimes being like white, upper middle class, wealthy, and also at least holding Christian values, if not being a Christian. Or coming from like a Christian family or something. Like a yeah, yeah. Like a Those sort Irish of people Catholic just make my skin crawl. Family or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. So I'd, I'd prefer it if they just went the whole hog and just embraced Pentecost. See, I have this friend that I really fucking respect, respect because he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, um, he's, uh, working at, uh, at, at Goldman Sachs. I don't want him to get fired, so I'm not going to reveal much more than that, but he's working at Goldman Sachs. Oh, wait, no, was he, is he, where did he move on? But he was working at Goldman Sachs and he's just like, yeah, I just really like making money. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, when it's someone's like, like yeah, good. I don't have a problem with you if you're working at Goldman Sachs or something like that. Just no, no, it's be honest he was about extremely it. Like, if you're there and you just like making, if you just like making cash, then fucking no, he go said for to it. Me, he said to me once, he's like, uh, yeah, they did like a, a psychological profile testing of people when they get in to like try to have some predictors about like performance, and they basically mm, just found mm. that the two strongest predictors of, of performance in Goldman Sachs is just disagreeableness, sociopathy, disagree, <laughs> disagreeableness, <laughs> and I can't remember the euphemistic term that they use, but it was something like um, material motivation or something like that. It's just like how much? Just are you motivated by <laughs> just making want to make fat stacks, shitloads of money, and? Are you really disagreeable, <laughs> hard-headed, and stubborn? Yeah. Okay. So when and when it, I get pissed off about about like management consultants spouting like, what I regard as like Twitter leftism, Twitter leftism, just like brain dead takes. It's not the fact that I dislike management consultants or bankers or something. Like I just I don't have a problem with that. It's the insincerity that really pisses me off. Yeah. You see, I I um. <clears throat> I get a hard on for the insincerity because I know that person's going to go home that night and just like hate themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm less vindictive. <laughs> part of me feels, part of me does feel bad for them in that like clearly you're not happy. Uh, on some level, you must recognize this vast gulf between your stated beliefs, which like, on some level, if they keep advertising them, they must think at least part of it is true. But so the, the stated beliefs. And how you lead the majority of your waking life, like eighty percent of the time you're that you're awake. Doing the opposite what of what you're you saying right now. So, in terms of yeah. projection and psychoanalysis, like we just play, yeah, bring, play, bring play, it back to play armchair psychoanalysis on these people. Is it just are they just status signaling? This is like cheap, um, you know, because in in it <clears throat> at least in Australia, because you can largely say whatever you want, and maybe you'll get some sideways looks or something, but, you know, it's not like North Korea or something. Like, there's not a huge cost to just, like, saying whatever the fuck. And it's just like, yeah, I can say this and then just my – in 40 hours that I'm going to spend this week working is just, like, completely contrary to what I'm just about to say, so it doesn't matter. So it's, like, cheap signaling. Mm -hmm. Or do you reckon, like, there's an element of, like, these people actually think this and – but they're just, like, they just don't know how to align their – they don't have the courage or the fortitude to align their actual professional choices with their underlying ethics. It's probably like all of the above. It'll be multifactorial. One thing I've definitely noticed is that I think status signaling is a significant component of it because I do think there's a certain 
cynical pessimism and a sort of a play at high-minded resignation that that seems to be intellectually very fashionable at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, you get um, status points for being pessimistic. So this this posture of I recognise that the world's fucked and everything's terrible and I can't change anything and I'm so depressed, but the fact that I recognise these things means I'm really clever and high-minded. The fact that you know, 99% of the people this person associates with hold the exact same countercultural views never occurs to them. That <laughs> that definitely carries social. That's a social currency, and so I think yeah. that's a big part of it. Concern. We were t- we were talking we were talking before this actually that being optimistic and openly optimistic is courageous, and like I, I do I do really think that's the case. And similarly, being that sort of just consumerist pessimism is so cowardly. Yeah. You're just agreeing with everyone around you that nothing can change and so justifying to yourself why you're not going to change anything and why you shouldn't even bother. It just, it's so safe. It's safe and when I've had those experiences, and look, you're you're in the heartland of that shit right now. This is why I fucking left Melbourne. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the inner I couldn't fucking stand it. By the time I left Melbourne, God, I would, you know, like, I'm Aboriginal, so there's still parts of Australia where, like, I feel uncomfortable, like, going to certain towns in, like, remote, say, like, New South Wales or remote Queensland. I would rather have moved to, like, Blackall in central fucking Queensland than stayed in fucking Melbourne any longer <laughs> and have just been, like, the only fucking blackfella living in the middle of town. Like, honest to God, because, like, at least, like, you know, like... So- some racist person in a town like that is actually just being honest. <laughs> like I can respect their, their honest racism. They're living their truth. I can selves. respect their honest racism more than I can respect the dishonest status signaling crap that goes on in, in Melbourne at times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I, I'll return to Jung shortly when I get off my soapbox. <laughs> yeah. No, for for listeners, like be be brave and and be optimistic. Recognize that you can change things in the world, and things can get better. Anyway, it's, we'll get back to Jung. This is something I feel very strongly about, though. Yeah, and I think it's a message that people like need to hear, especially young young people. I mean, like young people are just drenched in pessimism about the environment, about the global environment specifically, uh, and about a lot of like quote-unquote social justice issues as if, like, we're doomed to a world of just, like, suffering and injustice and it's just getting worse and we're heading toward, like, like we're basically... Mm, it's very mm. apocalyptic in a way and... Um, yeah, yeah, it's very military. And there's this very... I don't know if they're inherently linked, but there seems to be this kind of like how some genes are very correlated with their replication with one another. They're, all, they're almost like they almost move together, um, like a lot of the time, like, there's this, like, strong link between, like, environmentalism and, like, wokey sort of crap. And it seems to be the dominant yeah. paradigm in certain parts of the world. And it's a very, it's an incredibly disempowering, pessimistic and depressing way to look at the world. And I also think it's just false. Like, like we're we're lifting many people out of poverty every year 
like hundreds of millions over the course of the last 50 years have come out of abject poverty, like lots of parts of the world. Whilst there are local environmental issues, there are also like a lot of like there's a lot of reforestation. We're saving species. We're also like getting off the planet so we can save the entire fucking bio, like the entire biodome of the entire planet is going to be completely destroyed by the sun unless humans figure out how to get us off the planet, how to get life off the planet. No, but that's that's natural and beautiful. So like. And humans are the ones who can do all these good things. As in, by humans, I mean, like, everybody listening to this podcast <laughs> has the same yeah. capability that Alan Turing had to create the things that make his contributions, that, like, Dali had to make his artistic contributions. Like, everybody has the same sort of, we've been built with the same underlying, so to speak, like, operating system as all these great minds who made great contributions. And so we have now 5 billion of these minds connected on the internet and more and more every day and more and more of them have access to this amazing like cornucopia of education and ideas on the internet and yet despite all of these good things that are happening we have this overwhelmingly pessimistic like paradigm in our culture that's just like it's embedded in the education system and in our mainstream media and stuff that is just telling people but especially mm. young people that the world's getting worse which it's not that they can't do anything about it which they can and that the only way to get out of this is to give centralized institutions, particularly governments, more and more, <laughs> more, and more control. I'm waiting for this. Which is, is the exact opposite thing, what we need to do. We need to give people more freedom and decentralized power. And so, like, I mean, I just totally disagree with all of this stuff. And people like you were mentioning before yeah. are like the low-level reinforcers of that, of that cultural pessimism. Yeah. They're the ones who walk into a dinner a fucking dinner party. They walk into a dinner party and they they take all the fucking light out of the room. Oh, they, they really are. They really suck are the fucking air out. Yeah. They just suck it suck all the fun out of any situation. The vampire, the like energetic vampires. And those people and the fact that they end up going and getting like tenures at universities and they get they become like whatever speaking head for like the ABC or whatever, like, is just reinforce. It's like propagating this pessimism out into the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also think very fundamentally, within their paradigm, there is this very common idea that you shouldn't, you can't change anything meaningfully, and you shouldn't try, and it's naive to even think you can try. But within, again, within that paradigm then, if you can't, if the world is just inexorably getting worse and nothing will change, why complain about it? Like, if you truly think that, then just fucking suck up how bad the world is. Just like, just, just accept your lot and keep quiet. It's such an irritating evangelism. On that note, I, I would even, I would prefer like somebody just come out and just be an accelerationist at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like you're, you're. It's like these people are not only like a little gloom and doom, fucking, you know, like energy vampires. They also don't want to just be like, all right, well, let's fucking drive this baby into the fucking fire, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're going to be a little shit, at least be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> don't just waltz into the fucking party where everybody's trying to have a nice time and then just, like, get status points by, like, 
signaling how fucking it, it's literally they are literally this is why i think ayn rand like I, I love talking shit about ayn rand but like i do also think that her social commentary was really on point like some of the characters in the dinner party scenes in um yeah Shrug, yeah yeah i was in an event with fairly recently those people exist <laughs> the person who yeah um can confabulates about is that the word confabulate like yeah confabulates yeah. about like how humans are just bad and the world's getting worse and everything sucks <laughs> those people exist yeah 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 i've i feel how sorry about we get on to um <laughs> see i'm in a part of the world right now where like people there are people that are just too poor to give a shit about that sort of stuff like and so there's mm. I, there's literally people in the part of indonesia where i am right they work literally seven days a week and by work i mean they're, they're at work like all day seven days a week and they're just thinking about like saving up enough money so that like their kid when they have a kid or if they've got kids d- doesn't have to fucking do what they're doing right now and like, if you tried to talk to the, so you're saying that we need to abolish the minimum. I think wage we need to get rid of minimum wages and like age restrictions, and really, we just need to put the kids to work. <laughs> Child labour laws have destroyed our. Look, we've made this. Is we've made I'm this saying. joke too many times for it not to be at least partially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure listeners are rapidly realizing that we're just not that interesting as people. How about we talk about <laughs> chapter five, the stages of life? <laughs> this was this was probably my favourite chapter in the book. J-Man, one of our, our dear Discord members and a listener, made a comment to me quite recently. He made it to me yesterday that Gen Z are degenerates and millennials are Peter Pan. <laughs> and the Peter Pan comment uh, ties in ties into this stages of life chapter. What did he say? Very, what did he very say uncomfortable. Peter Pan, Gen Z, Peter Pan. Gen, Gen Z are degenerates. And millennials are Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah. Because we are the generation that refuses to grow up. We are 30-year-old adolescents. Yeah. <laughs> and this Okay, so so back to back to the like this this gathering I had before. Because it was it was the first time I've had a lot been around a large number of Australians of my own age. Uh, first time I've been around them for a long time. For about a year. It's horrible, isn't it? And it was <laughs> it was very interesting to see and so so yeah my wife and i've been discussing having kids for a while now and this was just it was just one of those images that burns itself into your brain that made us think yeah probably in the next 12 months we've (laughs) we should have kids because it was this group of people in their early 30s basically acting like we acted when we were 20 at college and no one has kids everyone has at least a dog or multiple dogs that is the replacement child, they all work jobs that none of them seem to find particularly meaningful, but just fills up time. And I just looked at them and thought, fuck, I don't want, I don't want to be like this. <laughs> yeah, just all of a sudden, like, out, out of the depths of your just subconscious, like, just a giant clock emerged and you were just like, oh, like, shit. I need to have a baby. <laughs> beat, a single bead of sweat just start, like, appears on Jack's brow, just starts dripping down. <laughs> First one bead of sweat and then just, just starts dripping. <laughs> he looks across at his wife. She's yeah. just dripping. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But so... The, the high level overview of this chapter is that Jung says within a human life, 
assuming they they get to the point where they die of natural causes. So yes, of course, this doesn't apply to you if you get killed when you're 20 or get some sort of you know get appendicitis when you're a kid and drop dead. But if you live 70, 80 years on the Earth, your life will follow a certain trajectory. And while it does vary between cultures, there are a lot of points which are just conserved across cultures. In my case, it is the delayed transition from adolescence to adulthood, which is, which is a, something that affects, I would imagine, most millennials. Gen Z are still young and think that it won't happen to them, but I, I, I just want to just before we <clears throat> get too too far into this chapter, just relate the link. There is one other <clears throat> important link between the pessimism stuff and this delayed adolescence. <laughs> You've just been ruminating while no, I'm no, this, talking. No, no, this one came to mind just then because you start talking about like kids and stuff, like. A part of yeah, this yeah, pessimism yeah, yeah. and like the stages of life stuff, the delayed adolescence of this Peter Pan generation, is like there's also like a, a demonization of children and having children. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think it's deeply linked. And so people are kicking the can as far down the road as they can, and even saying like, "Oh, well, in the extreme, like, why would you want to have kids when the world is ending?" Which it's not. Yeah, and why would you want to have kids? So I'm, I'm gonna get my third dog and dote on it uh, like I would a human uh, child, and then the dog's gonna get fucking anxiety issues anyway. It's gonna end up on just as much fucking antidepressants as your kid would anyway. So why don't you just have a fucking kid? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so like, but here, here's the reason why: because people are awesome, people are amazing. Like we're the species that builds skyscrapers yeah. and goes to the moon and that sort of shit. And I think we need more of them. And if you leave it too long, especially as a woman, um, shout out to all the chicks listening, <laughs> which I'm sure there's <laughs> How many of those so many, exist? All three of you. <laughs> the, the, fab- the fabled female book club from hell listener. <laughs> like, uh, like, fucking kids are cool. Like, I don't know. Like, I to me, I, and I do think you have to caveat what I'm about to say with, like, taking into account the person's age. But if somebody doesn't like kids... Like, come the fuck on. Like, just hang out with some kids. Like, they're so cool. <laughs> they're, they're fucking full of energy. Like, they look at the world like it's actually a, a good place to be in because it is. Like, they're happy to be alive. They're interested in things. They learn unbelievably quickly. Um, like, they're incredible. And, yeah, it's a lot of work, no doubt. But, like, they're fucking cool. And the idea that we have a whole generation of people who have, like, delayed or even say that they don't want to have kids even into their 30s, is to me just like this profound disc. Like they actually don't know what they're talking about. And I was guilty of this when I was like 20. Yeah, well, it, it just strikes me as a, a refusal to grow up. And I say this as someone who, yeah, like I'm, I'm 30, childless. I've been married for like almost nine years now. Putting things off for your career is, is important. And uh, that, that has been a reason why we've put it off. But I do think that there does reach a point where you do need to grow up a bit. I also do. I think part of it too is we're so we're so obsessed with gratifying our immediate desires that something like having a having a child does make that more difficult. You do have to care about someone else a lot more than about yourself. And I'm not sure what Gen Z are like, but at least I don't 
among millennials, I don't think we're particularly good at that. No, instead what happens is people abstract it into like these amorphous, large-scale, poorly defined, quote-unquote, social or societal issues or global issues, and then try to like <clears throat> supplant the physical like relationship with a with a child replace it with a with a dog and then just harp on about fucking global climate yeah a, a dog plus environmentalism yeah or dog something. plus environmentalism mate you just fucking summed it the fuck up <laughs> that is the Jesus <laughs> Jesus Christ like we lost we've we've disconnected from the church we've gotten rid of kids replaced them with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and we wonder why we have a bunch of fucking neurotic 35-year-olds running around fucking on antidepressants. Yeah, neurotic 35-year-olds <laughs> who still, like, tearfully listen to emo and imagine how good it was when they were a teenager, when they were probably miserable. <laughs> yeah, re- reminisce about the, the, the pop music of the two, early 2000s. The good old days. It's like, music wasn't good in the And 2000s. the thing is, like, you just need to pull <laughs> these people aside and say, hey, guess what? Being an adult is really cool. There is, like, there's so much people to be excited are good. about. Pe- being future. a person is cool. Children are cool. <laughs> humans, humans are the most incredible thing in the known universe. Would you rather be a human or a toad? We are the point at which the universe, at least in one pocket of this incredibly vast void, has turned around and looked at itself. And started asking why it's here. And gone, oh, wow, this is weird. Started podcasting about it. And then started going on rants like we, about we, we are a corner of the universe <laughs> podcasting about, itself. about other little bits of the universe which are generating their own which ideas. Which might be podcasting about us. has done this. <laughs> Maybe one day somebody will podcast about us, about how we change their mind, about how psychedelic it is to have a conversation with another bag of cells over the internet and then broadcast that for nearly free to thousands of mm. other bags of cells who are having subjective experiences experiences that we don't know how to explain anybody who thinks that that is not a profoundly unbelievably cool thing is a fucking idiot (laughs) no there is there is so much to be excited about in the world (laughs) we we need to talk about jung but i just like i say i'll get off my soapbox i doubt i will but (laughs) for for now i just want to say that there's so much to be excited about in the world um and people should be excited about propagating about propagating consciousness through time with this children. Podcast to all of your friends. <laughs> and with this this podcast is more important than children, but uh, one's one rung below b- rabid book club from hell fandom <laughs> is having ch- having children. <laughs> so do you want to maybe now that I've waylaid the conversation again, would you like to get us back on track with the stages <laughs> of life? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well Prefacing it with the that mention of millennials as the Peter Pan generation, I think situates this well and illustrates why this chapter is still so important and why I would recommend it to basically anyone reading. Uh, anyone reading? Anyone listening? Wrong verb. He Jung, as is the case with basically everything he writes, prefaces prefaces all of this by saying, "Okay, well, I've gotten this by observing patients, and I'm trying to form a theory of, in this case." how a human life progresses over time. But I'm not positive, and I hope someone else picks up the thread after I'm done and continues to develop it, because this is not complete. So in in his idea of how life develops over time, he uses the, the metaphor of a sun rising, reaching its zenith, and then setting. And at the extremes of life, at a very young age and a very old age, those are times when life is more submerged in the subconscious. So when you're born, 
And as an infant, Jung sees your life as being basically completely immersed in the subconscious. So this subterranean world of symbols, the, the part of you that calls itself I hasn't developed yet. And as a child begins to age, first it, it separates itself from its parents, it separates itself from the environment, and it realizes that amid this swirl of sensation is some somewhat fixed point, this I, and that is the development of consciousness. And in Jung's view, particularly the first half of your life, when, this, when the sun is rising and reaching its zenith, that's where the conscious self spreads itself through the world. And this is, as, as a child, it's developing into an adult. Well, for childhood and then a youth, he calls youth between, I don't know, say roughly hitting puberty and your mid-30s. He calls that youth, which I'm always very flattered by because it means I'm, I'm still a youth. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> Spreading through the world means many things. It means developing your sense of personality, separating your sense of self from your parents, finding your social group, but also propagation. So he regards having children as something that youth does, which makes sense because when you think about, particularly for women, that there's actually a fairly narrow band of time in the, the beginning of your life when you can have kids. So like what, what you're saying here is physiologically quite reasonable. I mean, you're not going to be an 80-year-old woman having babies. This is something that youth does. It spreads itself through the world and develops its consciousness because consciousness is this part of the self that reaches out into the world. Yeah, and it's energy intensive as well. And then really interestingly, yeah, energy intensive. And then this second part of your life, the the autumn and winter of life, he regards as and this is this is a very interesting thing to to think about in our culture which is very youth obsessed. It's the second half of your life where you turn inwards and learn more about your unconscious. So your, your younger years are, ex- are very external. And in older age, he regards, he says it's very important to have a goal always in life, to have a life oriented towards something. And older age orients towards death, which he said is not to be considered morbid or pessimistic or sad, but exciting because death is this great unknown. And you orient towards it by becoming more, more reacquainted yeah, reacquainted with this unconscious world that you were immersed in as a child and into which you will be re-immersed in extreme old age. And then eventually once you, you reach the stage of complete dissolution in death. And he talks about along this way, there are these different milestones that if you are, if you're aging healthily, you will reach things like as a child separation from your parents. And he talks about places where people can get stuck. And again, just because I'm living through this at the moment with my peer group, the Peter Pan of millennials I see as just a failure to move from adolescence to adulthood in the Jungian paradigm. And the way he sets it out, part of the reason why this chapter hit me so hard is I just thought, wow, this guy who's been dead before I was born, I've never lived in a time when Jung existed, but he just, picked how my peer group is acting right now i'm sure i'm sure other millennials are listening and you know hopefully this is not restricted to me and i'm not highly abnormal in this sense hopefully you too recognize this in 
in your social group, it really does seem like so much of the mental anguish of millennials is because we've just stalled and had, and are not developing in a healthy way. We just steadfastly remain children. So <clears throat> shout out to Jordan Peterson. The way that Jordan Peterson puts it is <laughs> <laughs> Jung's intelligence was bloody terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I agree. Can you do that voice for the rest of the episode? I think listeners will really appreciate that. Um, uh, I'll just make a quote from the chapter in John Peterson's voice. It is the growth of consciousness which we must thank oh, please don't. for the existence <laughs> of problems. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not, not going to torture you all with my fucking horrible Jordan Peterson impression. <laughs> no, I, but uh, Jordan Peterson makes this point that Jung is very intelligent, which he is. Uh, which, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree and, with that one. Uh, awards. And, uh, and, but more, I think more interesting is he wasn't just intelligent, he was also wise. And so he's yes, yes. That's probably the best interesting way to blend. Him. I agree of with that. Yeah, yeah. Wise and but it's actually a triad because you could conceivably be, I suppose, both wise and intelligent. But the the sort of kicker to it is like the the Brave insight. Well. He had this like penetrating insight into these patterns of like social existence that characterized the experience of hundreds of millions of Westerners in his lifetime and seems to be applicable to hundreds of millions of more people after his lifetime in other parts of the world. And reading a person who's mm, able mm. to see that deeply into such a complex phenomenon is uh, it's quite an, it's just, it's a very interesting read. I, yeah. I don't know what to say other like, it's just profoundly interesting. Yeah. Maybe I could say a little bit more about the stages of life. What's <clears throat> really interesting is because he, he went across cultures, he, he would have seen like – I think he speaks about it actually in this book, uh, like seeing initiatory ceremonies or like rites in – I think he was exposed to like some African cultures and some North American, Native American, like First Nations cultures. Um, he's kind of synthesizing – there's this – and I'll throw in there, additionally to that, from my knowledge, there's also like uh, Roman society and Greek society, like Hellenic Greece, had like this idea of like, first you would join, like you'd do your education, then you'd spend some time in the military, then maybe you'd start a business after you've, your military service or you go into politics, and then later in life you might retire and become an ascetic or a philosopher. And not extremely strict, but this rough idea that like there's, age appropriateness for different parts of like your social function. So like yeah and yeah. the and in Indian society or at least like Vedic so I can't comment about modern Indian society but at least like sort of like the history of um the Indus Valley from my interest in Buddhism is they seem to have a similar thing where it's like there'd be an age appropriateness for like becoming an ascetic and that sort of thing and within my cultural background like there's an age appropriateness of like when somebody can be considered an elder and and when somebody is like considered to be like an adult uh, and they should be behaving as an adult rather than as a child. And 
even if you're an old person, doesn't it doesn't make you like an elder. So what I mean by elder is like somebody who's like an older person, but they're also respected and they might have like a social function with regards to like community decision-making and that sort of stuff. Um, mm, mm. And just because you're old doesn't make you an elder. It's, it's, it's also like a, a matter of like responsibility. And um, there definitely seems to be like across cultures and times, this sense that like different phases of your life, they might not, strictly speaking map to particular ages but certainly the older you get you should grow out of well i suppose who said it better than the bible (laughs) one corinthians chapter 13 is like when i was a child i reasoned as a child i spoke as a child when i became a man i left childish ways behind me i think like whether it's mm, in Christianity, mm, I'm sure there's similar things in Islam. There's definitely mm, similar things in like the Vedic cultures and across all these different cultures. It's this idea, okay, well, it is a good thing and it is appropriate and it is fulfilling and meaningful to no longer be a child, to no longer be a youth and to graduate to the next phase of life. And it's like across the world, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of like millennials and God forbid if the Gen Zs do it as well, like basically – are not graduating to the next phase of life. Yeah, yeah. And it does alleviate a lot of the fear of aging as well. So I don't look forward to things like becoming physically frail. A bit of osteoporosis. But <laughs> a bit of fun. Yeah. It's <laughs> really fun. Just like my joints to break down. <laughs> yeah, but Jung's point that part of the reason why, like, well, I'm, I'm a, Jung didn't make this point explicitly, of course, but I'm extrapolating why many millennials are so terrified of growing up is that there's the there's the feeling that they won't be relevant anymore but that's so within within the context of youth like no they they won't be because they're trying to compete in basically compete with younger people in terms of youth and it's like well no an 18 year old just is going to be younger than you yeah it's the, the thing is like that that paradigm is completely unhealthy and not it doesn't befit the stage of life you're in you shouldn't be competing with people younger than you to be their age because that is the stage of life that they are at and the stage of life that they should be living through and growing through instead uh, millennials should be being adults like that's that is the point of life that we're in and the one that yeah and that, we really I should be living it. Living most acutely, it. that takes the form of parenthood, which I don't have kids, but I am mm. looking forward to having children. Um, <clears throat> but it, it also, like in other forms, takes on like, well, if you've got a job, are you taking on more responsibility in your job? If you're a part of like a community, whether it's a religious community or like just a like a geographically based like local community, are you contributing to your community at whatever level is appropriate for like your skills and and that sort of stuff and this idea that like in young age and i think it's appropriate that like the younger you are you should spend more time on yourself building yourself up developing skills learning traveling whatever and as you mature blossom as a as a person that energy starts to turn from an inwards self-obsessed energy towards like a generative more like externally facing family or community or if you're 
if you have the capacity to go even further than just like your local community, but to like larger scale communities, like that's really appropriate. And actually to use the metaphor of like the flower blooming, I would actually say that like you're not blossoming as a young adult. Like that is actually the time where you're still growing. And actually I, w- I would say that like yeah. it's probably not until your 30s and your 40s that you're actually fully blossoming because now the radiance of that flower is turned towards the sun and for others to benefit. It's not just in completely obsessed with its own growth. Yeah, and in some ways, so it can't be too no. prescriptive because everyone is different, but I do think the general outline is you are building potentiality as a young person. Like, yeah, in your early 20s, you're building the potentiality for you to bloom when you're older. And yeah, so blooming in that sense, it can, it in many people takes the form of children. I certainly don't want to give the impression that that is, that is a necessary component many of adulthood. Because you know, not everyone's yeah. going to have kids. Like, you know, if you can't, you can't. When, when I get irritated is more when people try to discourage people who can from having kids yeah. by convincing them that, that kids uh, are evil or whatever. Bringing new yeah. humans into the world is evil or it'll stop them from being a young person. Or God which, forbid, you know, proposed population controls. Plot, yeah. Plot twist. If you're 35, you're not so yeah. young anymore. And the people who actually put out population um, control ideas are like genuinely fucking evil. <laughs> yeah. But, but that blooming can take place, can, can take other forms too. So you, you build up this potentiality in your twenties and then you, you release it, you integrate it and release it in some generative way. And I, I resonated very strongly with when Jung was saying that. And it really helped me, actually, in some ways, come to accept that I'm not, I'm not 20 yeah. anymore. And there are so many things to look forward to. Yeah. There's almost I like a, a demonization. Or it's not, it's like, not maybe, maybe it's not a demonization. It's like a, uh, it's, like, it's just a blind. Deep uh, fear. Yeah. I don't even know if I'd go that far. It's just a blind spot of like mm. as if. It's like you just spend your you, you get to thirty or forty, and then it's just like the rest of your life you're just a ghost, and all you're doing is just like it's like what, as if like thirty and forty year olds, like I know some seventy year olds who live life better than a twenty year old because of their attitude towards the world and towards mm. others, and and they embrace the fact that they're getting older, but they're also still living a full and rich life. And so this kind of like the youth obsession coupled with like probably like there's a lot of memes going around in the culture around like you get a job and then you just get beaten down by the man for 20 years and then you, then you die, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. And if you do get caught up in, a, in the prestige rat race, of choosing to do certain jobs, and I, I made this mistake, uh, I speak from personal experience, if you choose to do certain jobs because it's you perceive it as very prestigious, you're going to be... But I, I think, like, yeah, prestige, not to... Like, prestige is definitely something that... some. But I think it extends, because the reason why we talk about prestige is because, like, in our social context, like, we've been exposed to a lot of people who are, like, fairly high, high, yeah, high achieving, like, academically, and go on to, like, do interesting corporate things like competitive corporate jobs but like 
but also outside there are just like people who are not in those prestige traps but are just in the trying to get by trap like i just need to fucking work a job so yeah, i'm going yeah, to yeah. whether it's a white collar job or a blue collar job or like a labor or whatever and people get beaten down by like the monotony of of like trying to earn their next paycheck and like save for the future like okay not going to go on a bitcoin rant i'm just going to very briefly say that <laughs> i genuinely those are obligatory, i genuinely though. think that po- levi gets kicked off the podcast team if he doesn't provide at least one <laughs> this bitcoin is shout out to yarp and the others on the discord for tolerating my <laughs> bitcoin rants but like the ability to okay so have you ever asked yourself about the relationship between technology and psychology I think that's a very important like that's a very important connection. In in mm-hmm. in the connection to Bitcoin, what I'm saying is that like we have a generation, two generations of people who have existed in a world where in some parts of the world, like America, where they outlawed it, like they didn't have access to a technology that allowed them to look optimistically towards the future. And in order to get access to savings technology, people took out like home equity loans and stuff like that. So the, what I'm saying is the actual ability to save and then that saving to like maintain or increase its purchasing power into the future as a way to like look for, okay, I'm going to save 20% of my income this year and that may, and it's not debt. I'm not paying down a debt, but like I'm actually just saving. Like in my case, it's Bitcoin. I'm saving mm. in Bitcoin. To me, Bitcoin is a savings technology. It's not an investment technology. It means that when I put that money in Bitcoin, I'm going to not touch it for at least five years. But I know that when I do touch it, it'll be there. It'll be the same amount because the savings technology, there's no yield, there's no counterparty risk. And what we've essentially got is got hundreds of millions of people who don't have access to a technology that connects them to their future self. And Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. without having to like sign up to debt, essentially, which is like a form of like, you're, you're, you're making an obligation on your future self so that your current self can save. So it's 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 a it's a catch twenty two, whereas like a bit a Bitcoin or if there's some other technology that I don't know about, which is no counterparty risk, no yield. It's not being invested or anything like that. It's just a thing that you own and you hold, and it means that in the future you're you're buying something that you can give to your future self. So I think there's actually a deep connection between this and our the economics of actually being able to save for the future. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm. I'm heavily exposed to Bitcoin, so anything that justifies me holding that iron like, Like, okay, if we didn't have Bitcoin, if Bitcoin wasn't created or if it had been snuffed out back in 2011 or whatever, like we would still exist in a world where the only way that I could save for my future would be to go and get a home equity loan and I would be signing up for like a 30-year 30, 30 mm. home equity loan that I would be exposed to like the monetary risk of like what decisions is the uh like uh the reserve bank of australia making with regards to interest rates but that's also influenced by like what decisions is the u.s federal reserve making because that affects the entire global monetary system or then i'm also exposed to like the the housing market market risks and it's like is that really savings that doesn't sound like savings to me that sounds like an investment and so because we've got millions and millions of young people in our generation who are just starting to get their head around Bitcoin. What it actually means is it means they can save for their future in the same way that like 
200 mm. years ago, mm. somebody in Western Europe under the gold standard could go out, they could work, and they could go and buy some gold, and they're not going to get any yield on the gold. They're not going to, it's not going to like give them some fancy financial contract. It's just going to sit there. And as long as they custody it s- securely and responsibly, it's not going to get taken away from them. And they could think, I'm going to save up six months worth of gold and then I'm going to start my own business. Who did that? The Wright brothers did that. The Wright brothers saved up gold from their mm. bicycle business and were able to take time off their bicycle business to work on their planes. And so our generation hasn't had access to that technology. And we need access to that technology to put our generation in contact with a better future, but not a better future in our mind, but a better future in our technology. Yeah, we need need some more some greater sense of permanence. Yeah, exactly. So because like the whole world, and I've, I think I've said this on this podcast, but I'm not sure, but like there's a few constants in the world. You know, there's that classic saying about like there's only two like guarantees in life, death and taxes. Kind of true. I kind of understand what they're saying. What really is like the, some of the constants are one constant is entropy. Everything is degrading all the time. And the expenditure of energy and the creation of new knowledge is part of what we're doing at all times is trying to locally reverse and push against entropy to create mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a beautiful garden, to create a civilization, to create a life worth living. But in order to do that, we need we can't just do it just with our bare hands. We have to do it with like uh, social institutions that work with societies and cultural memes that support working against entropy and also technologies that help us like basically fight this infinite battle that us, all of our ancestors and all of our descendants will have to fight this battle at all times, always. With the other other essays in this book, how many of them do you find interesting enough to talk about? Because there are there are a few ideas from them i don't like psychology and literature i found really really yeah i wanted so i think we can skip freud and jung because he's just comparing himself with jung not super interesting archaic man yeah he's just talking about like archaic man historically but also he's comparing like modern european cultures versus like say african pre-scientific cultures i don't know if that's super interesting we've sort of like touched on something but i think psychology and literature was the other major essay that i wanted to talk about and the other, the other one was what's eleven psychotherapists or the clergy. Those are the two ones that I would like to still talk about. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. other ones, I think we can. Oh no, sorry, ten. Sorry, ten, eleven. So chapter eight is psychology and literature, which we'll talk about now. And then is it the modern spirit? Ten and eleven problem? to me go together. The spiritual problem of modern man and psychotherapists yeah. or the clergy. Yeah. So yeah. do you want to talk about? Eight psychology and literature. This was maybe my favorite. This was a very cool one. So in it, he begins by distinguishing between what what he calls psychological literature, which which he doesn't find that interesting. But then then there's a different type of literature which hasn't been psychologized. So when he says psychological literature, it's an author analyzing their psyche and then putting that into a novel. And he says it's not so interesting for a psychologist because you're you're really you're reading the distortions of someone else's conscious attempt to interpret their unconscious. Mm. And he says, you know, that's that is interesting, and literary critics particularly find it interesting. But for a psychologist, it's not so interesting. What he finds much more interesting are these. He calls them at times primordial books, which I really <laughs> like. I knew you would like this. Or visionary. He calls them visionary, visionary yeah. or primordial. These books where. <laughs> <laughs> where an author author will access their 
this this collection of primordial symbols in their unconscious, these archetypes, and then use that to create a work of art which the author themselves doesn't necessarily understand. So he's very much of the opinion that an artist is at times unable to understand their own work. Someone else might be able to see what the artist doesn't, but the, the, the person creating it themselves might not actually have insight into what they have created. And so an example of a, a visionary or a primordial work, according to Jung, is Moby Dick. Moby Dick has been interpreted almost to death as a book, but in, in Jung's opinion, Melville was accessing his own unconscious, which, which, which is linked to others, so it's the, the collective unconscious, and drawing from that images and not psychologizing them. He wasn't trying to interpret these unconscious thoughts. Instead, he was creating a plot and characters based on those. And so Jung enjoys this, this type of literature because you can, you can interpret it. It's almost like dream analysis. In the same way that Jung analyzes the, the symbols present in someone's dreams, so too will he analyze the symbols present I think this in such primordial is just literature. Like one of the greatest. <clears throat> I actually think, like, I've been thinking about this for the last few days. I think this might be one of the greatest essays I've ever read. Like, it is, it is, such, really it is such a profoundly interesting essay. And just, like, I think he's basically grappling with this deep mystery of human creativity. And, and yeah, yeah, and that is fundamentally what he's doing. It's so it is talking about literature. That's that's the vehicle with which he explores this but idea. It applies but more generally. Fundamentally, he is he's examining human creativity. He, everything that he's saying could be applied to the great insights of like other artists. Yeah, and then even more broadly to to some of the truly visionary aspects of science and, and political and philosophical breakthroughs yeah so i mean in prefacing this i should i should lay out some of my first principles in that i do think there is external to human beings some sort of world which which exists whether we're aware of it or not there is some unity of knowledge and as humans we can asymptotically approach whatever is exterior to us using our explanations. And I think he is describing that process of insight and of trying, of graspingly approaching that exterior world. And also to some extent, like, I love, he uses this idea of what he calls like objectivity, where like, and Mm. correct me if I'm not conveying this quite properly, but what the person has created in some sense, like, is impersonal. Like, maybe their their idiosyncrasy, the idiosyncrasies of their psychology, like, colour it to some degree, but on some mm, level, mm. like, what they've done is they've created something impersonal that you can understand, like, he, he, he really likes Faust. <laughs> um, like, you can, yeah, you yeah, can understand Faust. Faust independently of understanding Goethe. Yes. In some ways, it's almost as if the individual, so in this case, author, but I really do think you can generalize it to the individual creator. The person carrying out the creative act is almost a window into this exterior secret. 
whatever is whatever is external to humans, and that window will be coloured by this individual's personality. But there is still something behind and through that coloured window that if they are making true art, and when I say true, I mean reflecting whatever reality is exterior to us, or if they're making some sort of scientific theory or proposing a scientific theory, which is more true than the previous ones, you are you are looking through that stained glass window into some sort of exterior secret. That's why, for example, I think that I disagree that art is subjective. I think actually you can have more or less true books of fiction. And more or less subjective art. To the extent to which they, they correspond with whatever the this exterior mystery is. And it could be like an an ethical truth. Truth when I say true, I don't it's it's not really it's not a one dimensional scale of no. truth. I don't think you can you can come up with some value and then order all of the books, say all of the novels written by human beings in in rank order of of trueness. But there is there is probably some vector you can make. You can collapse all of those different dimensions of truth into and say in a rough sense this book is truer than that book yeah even if they're both notionally fiction yeah yeah it's like <clears throat> it's i don't know how to put it but it's like the correspondence that makes some piece of fiction true is it's like a correspondence in in meaning or in morals or in mm social structure or in you know it's it's not talking about like the declarative facts of like this is an electron and it is it has this quantitative measure of its like whatever aspect um like mm, it's mm. it's not talking about that you're not the literature isn't in correspondence to those sorts of phenomena it's in correspondence to some other phenomena in in the case of like the faust you might say that it's in correspondence to the experience of the German people at that point in history and the cultural milieu mm, mm. of their society at that time. And I, I would say that you could say maybe a similar thing to like, like say Dost- Dostoevsky's stuff or like any of those great works where yeah. on some level there's, it's, it's, like, it's like actually it's transitory. Not only are they talking that they're, they're they're saying they're encapsulating some truth about their own society, but it's also their society is actually a glimpse onto like a deeper, more universal, or more less parochial and more universal truth about human existence. And so then you get those those yeah. texts that like okay, Dostoevsky was writing about Russia explicitly, but implicitly was saying stuff about all societies. Well, I I particularly like. Uh, What's his name? Uh, he wrote uh, the brothers Karamazov. Um, it was Dostoevsky. Yeah, yeah. Like those books are so and Orwell stuff. It's just like yeah, you see it. They're talking about England or they're talking about Russia, but it's like, but they're also talking about now, right here, right now. Yeah. Well, that's. I think the the difference between fiction and nonfiction is, in some sense, one of clothing. So in fiction. The exterior declarative facts are things that have been been invented. You know, did did the brothers Karamazov literally exist in a historical sense? No, but by using by using those 
I guess, superficially false or those fictional declarative facts, something truer or something true is being explored. Now, that's the distinction between fiction and nonfiction, is that that layer of of invention to get at something true. And just to go back to how, how cool is, people, just the idea that there's a, yeah, that there's a species yeah, yeah. that is doing this, that is, is expressing truth through falsehoods <laughs> in the form of yeah, art. Yeah. And then we pick, up, we pick up each other's thing that we've written, Moby Dick or, or whatever, and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, this is saying something true. And to the point where it's like 200 years later, people have printed that book millions and millions of times in different languages and shot it all over the world. Mm. And everybody's still going like, yeah, there's something true about this. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yes, yes. like so profoundly interesting. It's both a creative act of creation, but there's also a creative act of engaging with that creation of somebody else's. Yeah. And so Jung's explanatory model for this is basically that these visionary artists, and I, I really would extend it to scientists who have not just iterative ideas, but will just like completely shape Disc, like, our explanatory models to their foundations with some like insight. He, he seems to be saying that it's because they are tapping into this primordial unconscious world and, and bringing from that these symbols, which, which he, he ascribes a reality to on par with your liver or your heart. For Jung, these things are very real. I'm not sure whether I whether I agree with that or not. The, the, whether the exact mechanics of it are something that I agree with, but I do think there are constants of human experience, both our hardware, because you know, there are individual variations. But broadly speaking, our bodies are pretty similar. Yeah, it's not. It's like the the way that I put it is like you're actually pretty similar in morphology and body composition to essentially every other human. Like extremely similar. Like yeah. you have some slight variation that makes your skin pigment slightly different, or you're slightly taller, or you know, you've got a uh, you're a male or a female or whatever. And but that you're still within like a fairly closed, circumscribed set of variations. But the different yeah, the band of variations. But the difference narrow. between like say the uh, Chinese zodiacs explanatory model of the universe and say like Einstein in relativity, there's not like, that's not just a matter of small iterations. That's they're just vastly mm. different mm. Like, to the point, but they both came out of the human mind. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. I keep bringing it up. People need to be more optimistic about, about what human beings can do. We are capable of some pretty incredible things. It'd be easier, easier on, on ourselves, I think. <laughs> it was so harsh. Um, coming from me, I just caught like, like, we are We are hours, very like... flawed as a species, but we, we do have a lot of redeeming qualities. Yeah. And so maybe, okay, so I've got two important questions. Uh, I'll ask the first one, the religious one first, because we'll come back to the religious question. But I, I also have one about your artistic process. Um, my first question is like, does everything that we just said about literature fiction apply to like, uh, religion? So what I mean is like, like I'm not Christian, mm, but I mm. could take everything that we just said and say, well, 
maybe the declarative facts of, say, Jesus Christ or, say, Muhammad's or the Buddha's physical existence, what they did. Like, for example, there's this myth in the Pali canon about, like, the Buddha floating six feet off the air and fire blasting out of his eyes and stuff. Like, that didn't actually happen. <laughs> but that's... Um, I've taken substances. <laughs> definitely. Sure that that Maybe <laughs> internally that's how he felt <laughs> well, after he took five grams of dried shrooms. Um, but... Like, but is it true on the level of, like, what we're talking about now? Is it true on the level, say, like, take Christ for it as, as an example. Like, okay, maybe there wasn't a person who literally died and spent three days in the ground and then came back to life physiologically. But is it true on the level of, like, this thing is talking about, like, the, the fall and reincarnation of one's soul through, like, a transformative experience and... Is that true? Is it true that we can ascend ethically, virtuously through whatever like allegorical structure you want to interpret, say like the death of Jesus through? Is is like is religion like almost like the next level to this stuff? Yeah, not being qualitatively different. It's like distilled literary truth. I don't have a firm view on this. I'm thinking about it a lot because I'm writing a novel basically about this idea. So in in a few years, hopefully in a few years, someone listening to this, AD the novel will have been published and this will this will seem like an interesting artifact, me talking about it before it exists. I do think there is something to that. I think there is probably an inner and an outer secret and the outer secret are the human attempts to understand whatever this inner secret is that still eludes us. I don't really feel I can say much more than that because my own thoughts on this are so in flux at the moment. Well, that's good because it brings me to my... I'm just going to leave that as an open question. I don't know what the answer Mm. to that fucking Mm. question is. No, no, I'll I'll answer it definitively. I'll solve (laughs) this episode. (laughs) So my follow-up question was with regards to your own creative you know because like just for background listeners just so you guys know like jack and i came from a fairly academic if it's not clear already like scientific like i studied engineering we both studied medical science when we were younger and um and jack is now writing fiction and uh and i'm writing code and to the degree that I can get away from writing code for other people and write code for myself as just a creative act. It's doing something different to what Jack's doing, but it's kind of directionally the same, which is to say that it's like creating something. <clears throat> and even this podcast is like an extension of that. And uh, I, really, I really don't see any of those things as fundamentally different. No, I guess it's different mediums, I suppose. I, yeah, the media are different. Yeah, and... Um, but I guess my question for you was like, would you classify your works if Jung's classification is helpful? How would you classify your works? You're the three that you've written or the three that you're working on according to Jung's psychological or visionary. And how does that feel? What was that process and experience like for you, especially coming out of having been disengaged from your creativity throughout your early academic 
career? Yeah, so that's that's not an easy question. And I also, like, just anyone describing their own work as visionary is is repulsive. Well, we don't have to say <laughs> visionary, but we could say, like, beyond a mere idiosyncratic psychological work. So uh, to caveat all of this, I have not published anything. I want to... I'm someone with no background in writing who wants to publish novels on the internet. Like, you don't have to take my opinion on this seriously. Yeah, but you went through the effort of writing them, so... When it comes to writing... Yeah, well, I went to the effort. I feel when you get to know characters and a story well enough, it starts writing itself. So there are certain things that need to happen, whether you want them to or not, because they, they follow the internal logic and the truth of a particular story you've written. So in that sense, like you could describe that as primordial in the sense that probably my conscious self is not as in control of how things are going as, I don't know, as, as in other situations where I'm, I'm more consciously choosing to do certain things. Yeah. The process is very mysterious. I don't feel like I have a great degree of insight into it. Stories write themselves. I think that's that's probably the most I can say. You were saying in one of our conversations that there's like there's two so there's two types of truth in fiction, I would say. You won't say this, I'm just elucidating. Like there's the truth to something outside of the work, i.e. its correspondence to something in the world, which is to say like is Moby Dick is true because it says something about the human condition. But then there's the second meaning of truth, which is like the internal truth. So you could say like mm. there's fan fiction about, say, Star Wars, and some of that fan fiction is objectively wrong and bad fan fiction because it, dis- it like, for example, the episode yeah. that we did on Harry Potter, like that was bad fan fiction. But there is other fan fiction in the Harry Potter universe which might be good fan fiction because it actually is true, it corresponds to and is consilient with the internal structures and logic and characters and ideas of the Harry Potter universe. And so there's both an internal truth and also an external-facing truth. Like, Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then... So something can be internally consistent. And then what's most interesting is when it's consistent with the exterior world. So the novel that I plan on publishing probably sometime within the next few months, I wrote having not read The Technological Society by Jacques Ellul. I, I keep bringing up that book. But I keep I see very deep parallels between what I've written and Ellul's book. Although, even though I wrote... I wrote this book before having read The Technological Society. And so the fact that they correspond makes me more confident that I'm probably, there is, there is some truth to what I've written. And with regards to the internal, like, autonomy of the characters themselves, like, you couldn't, would it be fair to say that, like, if you just made one of the characters just, like, literally act out of character, just start doing, that would somehow feel like you've violated your own world yeah it starts being more false yeah so interesting so interesting yeah because I, I don't think there are absolutes in this like it's just like something is more or less true in the context of fiction yeah. both yeah. within a fictional work and then as that fictional work corresponds to the world more broadly 
It's in the same way that any sort of scientific theory, you can't say it is absolutely true. It's still a human, it's a human construct to explain the world. And some of them have incredible explanatory power, but I'm not sure I would say they're true. They're just less false than basically everything else we've tried in comparison to them as applied to a given problem. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and, and, and just like go a little bit further just for the sake of it, I guess. Like, we never do that. <laughs> like, I fucking love Karl Popper, as everybody knows. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I actually, I, I've read a lot of Popper's work and Popper actually studied psychology. His PhD was in psychology. And, um, and what I found really interesting is like he had critiques of, Freud and Adler, but I don't remember ever reading his critique, any critiques of Jung. And I find that really interesting mm. because it essentially like Popper has this idea of what he calls world three, the three worlds. And the three worlds are, there's one, the world of like actual physical objects, this table, this computer. Yeah, and then yeah. there's the world two, which would be like your subjective experience. Like, your psychology, your emotions, and that sort of stuff. And then there's this thing that he calls World 3, which is what he calls, like, virtual objects, which are, like, objects that you have in your mind's eye and that you can interact with via your World 2 apparatus. Mm, But mm. those World 3 objects have their own autonomous existence. And you might split hairs and say there's World 3 and there's World 4, so, like, World 4 might like be the actual objects that they're referring to and world three are like virtual representations of those objects. But like when I, when I start writing all written artifacts are world three objects, the reason why, or they're consequent, they're the outgrowth of the world of the third world. Mm. The reason why Q W E R T Y is those, this ink, this physical ink is laid out on this physical keypad in front of me, the reason why those atoms are there is because at some point a human mind had the idea about how to lay out symbols on like a keypad so that it could be Mm. manipulated, those symbols could be manipulated by other people's hands. And so they've projected World 3. And then World 3 would also include like our interactions with mathematical objects so, like, for example, when you're doing, say, two plus, like, arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals, if I say 2 plus 2 equals 3, you're actually interacting with those ideas in your mind, and you know that that's a false statement because you're actually manipulating those, those concepts. And when you write 2 plus 2, you're f- kind of, quote-unquote, forced to write 4 because... That's what those objects. That's the that's the logic of those objects, and so mm-hmm. there's this strange. And now, now it's really gone off to the fucking races with like computers and the fact that we can literally think up algorithms and then make the computers, the physical machines, act in particular ways because of the algorithms. Um, and so, like <clears throat> those. The reason why it distinguishes between world two and world three is because a lot of people make the mistake, going back to subjectivity, that they think that because something exists at the level of world two, 
like the subjective experience of like this piece of art, say, that therefore there is no world three, that there's no there's these things that have no autonomous existence of our own mind. But obviously, mm. given that we're living now in the information age and the computer age, like the person who figured out how to do, say, quicksort, which is a a very fast sorting algorithm. That algorithm didn't exist until somebody figured out how to do it, and it's much faster than the algorithms that existed beforehand for like how to sort things. And so all of a sudden, all the physical objects that could sort lists of numbers, say, all of a sudden, nothing physical about them changed, but this new idea was introduced, and they physically were able to sort numbers much faster because this World 3 object that is true was created in somebody's mind and then instantiated mm. on those machines. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is all to say that like, I think that entire like thing that I've just expressed. And I think like David Deutsch and other people are, like working on refining that idea and figuring out like the actual physics and the mechanics of it, the philosophy of it. <clears throat> but that idea to me is extremely consilient with everything that Jung says about like the essentially I think that, like, if Popper and Jung had sat down in the same room, they probably would have made progress. They probably would have actually said, like, oh, like, we're kind of talking about the same thing. This is to say that, like, there's these ideas out there. They were created, they're World 3 ideas, so they're autonomous. And in the Dawkins' words, he'd say they're memes, but they're autonomous, so they have their own internal structure and logic. Mm. And part of what they can encode is they can encode information about how to replicate themselves from one human to the next the classic example being jokes or like stories folklore stories that we tell children to make them behave in a particular way so what we're doing is we're instantiate reinstantiating say like the meme of the image of a witch in the woods in the mind of a young person so that they don't wander into the woods but that person young person is actually imagining this witch and so they're having this subjective experience of imagining this witch in the woods but it's like on some level that which does actually exist. It exists in the form of the world three object yeah. that we instantiate in the stories and stuff. And so what I think or what I would can haphazardly tentatively conjecture is that when we're dreaming and when we're creating literature, they're actually very closely related. And when we dream, sometimes mm-hmm. the objects in our dreams, they're actually world three objects they're memes from the culture that have entered into our psyche. And when I say that, say like I experience, say, a relationship and that person appears in my dream and I interact with that caricature that I've constructed of them in my mind. And I can feel the emotional resonance of that person is that personal relationship. But sometimes there's other characters in my dreams. Like last night I had this character appear in my dream that was like this purple man that was like some trope in like a movie or something on some level that element is like autonomous it encodes Mm -hmm. information about how to replicate from one person to another and it includes information about how to appear in my subconscious while i'm dreaming instead of like some other character a really good example of this would be like um the clown from it pennywise (laughs) <laughs> yeah there's yep. something so potent about that character and about the visuals of it about especially the 1980s version of pennywise the character who the person who played it played it so well that that mm. meme that world three object that pennywise actually is instantiated in the 
in the culture. And when it appears in, say, the dreams, the nightmares of young people, it is a true thing to say that, like, it is not them creating, like, that is Pennywise, that we've actually instantiated this this evil character that is actually jumping from human to human and giving mm. them nightmares. And I think actually with what you're saying, you can tie that into what, what Jung stated about how these things exist independently of the people who created them. So you can, yeah. you can use the example of Cthulhu and Lovecraft oh, in so that. Good. Yeah. But so you've got the, the person who notionally created Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft, who was not notorious for liking people different from himself. <laughs> he had... <laughs> I would go so far as to say he had, he had a few problems with people who were different Actively from him. Actively hostile towards others. <laughs> <laughs> Great author, though. But, but this creation of his is so... There's something about it that's so potent that people who aren't white enjoyed as well like it's this idea is spreading or has spread throughout the world and people from all sorts of cultures find something entrancing or something interesting in this idea of cthulhu so it's even further than what you've said it's whether the creator of it Mm. wants it to or not or no matter their intention if it is true enough it takes on a life of its own and just starts to spread and began means things that perhaps the creator of it didn't intend. It's um it see I think this is it's almost like there's a shadow realm or something like that. And I I, I say like okay for since we're talking about Jung like the collective yeah, like subconscious he, yeah is is as good a word to say or like Popper's World Three or like the meme plex or the or the ideascape or whatever it is. There's this kind yeah, of these like things are all pointing in the same direction. There's this there's this aspect to reality which is made out of what I'll say is it's made out of information. And Mm -hmm. that information, like we can interact directly with that information with our mind. In fact, our our mind is a form of information. Um, And, but it doesn't like it's, this is why I guess I rail against like, as much as I like, I'm a like science type person. Like I like all that science type stuff. Like I get annoyed at like, en- especially software engineers. I get really pissed off at software engineers who make this mistake that like they think the world reduces to just to physical stuff because it clearly mm-hmm. doesn't. And all you have to do is like have like think about these things like dreams, the creative act of creating a literary world. Yeah, consider Cthulhu. Consider Cthulhu. That's right. Like all these things clearly point to like, okay, these, this information needs to be, say, instant. Like Cthulhu is here on Earth. It's not on Mars. It hasn't been instantiated on any object in Mars. There's no physical computational process like a human mind or a computer or anything. There's not even like a piece of literature on Mars that contains that information yet, although maybe one day. But mm. It is so. It's, it's accurate to say that Cthulhu exists here on Earth. So there's a physicality to it, as in it needs to be embedded in physical objects that exist in time, space, but or space time. But there's also this non-physical aspect to it, which is like okay, but it can replicate. 
it can jump from physical object to physical object without losing like fidelity so it doesn't like entropy in the same way like the same laws that we apply to physical objects don't apply to these to these objects and yet we know they're real mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we interact with them and we create them in our mind and in the case of like the algorithm i think is a really good example is like the algorithm didn't exist until somebody invented it in their mind and it's true of the physical world because we literally put it onto pieces of silicon yeah it's like you put it into the physical world and suddenly the physical world just starts doing something different. Doing stuff that it, which is that just, it wasn't doing which before. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. And I but think it's like a car. It's like this idea of a car, you put it in the physical world and then it starts moving you hundreds of kilometers a day. Yeah. And so Jung I think Jung that the reason why I kind of fucking went crazy about this book is because it's almost like to me Jung has approached this problem that I've been interested in with regards to like the consciousness and the meme stuff and all this sort of thing from like this very different direction. He approached it from like yeah, a synthesis yeah, yeah. of mythology and literature and psychoanalysis. And he went like, if we look at it from this direction, <laughs> this is what we get. <laughs> and well, there's, yeah, there is some sort of secret and this is another view of the secret. Yeah. And I guess like this goes back to our, talk about optimism earlier. I think just because I'm probably temperamentally inclined to optimism, it's the sort of thing that I just kind of assume, like, yeah, we can probably work this out eventually. I think we will. I feel pretty I feel pretty good about being able to uncover this secret as a species. And look what eventually. happened when we uncovered the secret of, like, thermodynamics or, like, compu- like basic classical computation. Like, it fucking went off. Like, it created all sorts of crazy Yeah, we shit. got Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the highest human achievements. That is true art. Slav jank is the pinnacle of human achievement. And so, like, you know, like one of David Deutsch's more speculative things is he's like, when we have a theory of qualia, i.e. the components of subjectivity, like the redness of red, um, when we figure that out, we'll actually be able to create new qualia. That's his tentative prediction and i think about it sometimes i think that is such a profoundly fucking crazy idea like engineer qualia engineered qualia that's just insanity but on some level we are doing that like i've never physically had the experience of walking into the mountains of madness in antarctica mm-hmm. yeah okay. and yet, yeah, yeah yeah we can do i have had that yeah, yeah. indirectly through the literary capabilities of HP Lovecraft being able to create that image in my mind. Yeah, that's very true. Like when he just fucking law dumps you in the second half of the book. So good. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, like, we're on the verge, I hope. You never know. Like, it could be figured out tomorrow. It could be figured out in a thousand years. You just don't know. But, like, if we live, if we, God, God willing, inshallah, that like we live during that period of time where somebody has that fucking philosophical breakthrough and figures out how how this all how all these things like tie together and brings it all into like this is how we do it and it's how we can start like transforming the world using this insight and we can create technologies out of it. That I think you think the world right now is psychedelic with the internet and everything, <laughs> that will turn it up to fucking ten thousand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to progress through time. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of really cool stuff Jack, that could happen. I'm really excited to persist. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about the final two chapters? Yeah, let's do that. The spiritual problem of modern man. 
Yeah. So I guess fundamentally what he says that, or at least he, he postulates is the foundation of the spiritual problem of modern man and the adriftness he described in the mid 20th century, I think is still the problem today in the West. I don't, I don't think he's describing something significantly different from what makes a lot of people in 2023 miserable. He says that we overemphasize the conscious life. So this life of entering into the world, trying to change things in the world, and as a result of doing so, reaping, I would not say material, no, conscious rewards, I guess, or rewards for our conscious selves in the conscious world, as, yeah, for those labors. And this is at the expense of the unconscious. And when he talks of the unconscious, I do, to a large extent, see that as also him saying that we undervalue the creative, because for Jung, he really does seem to be linking the creative impulse with the unconscious quite strongly. And so I interpreted, so this, this is me going out of limb, and let me know if you don't agree with this, a large or perhaps a fundamental component of the, the modern crisis of meaning or sp- spiritual crisis in some secular sense is the undervaluing of the unconscious and as a, a significant effect of that, undervaluing the creative impulse. So instead of exercising our creativity in the same sense that you need to exercise your body in order for your body to be healthy, I really do think you need to exercise your creativity for your psyche to be healthy. And it's just not done as much given that most go through an educational system which prioritizes compliance. And in in prioritizing compliance, it also prioritizes working through defined given problems with defined given answers. And then you transfer into a work environment, which for most people will be an extension of that compliant lack of creativity. And such an underemphasis on the unconscious creative impulse makes people very, very unhappy at quite a deep level. Have I completely missed the point, or do you feel like that's that's um, at least a component of what he's writing about here? I think you've, yeah, I think you've you've gotten a you've encapsulated a big part of it. I, uh, yeah, maybe my brain was too far gone when I was reading this to like fully process everything, I think I could have just made all that up. Maybe in addition to that, to what you just said, there's also like, there's this conflict between like, there was a lot of optimism post-war. He even highlights like the league of nations, which is now like kind of morphed into the UN to the degree that you can make that link. Um, Like there's this like secular, kind of optimism, not in the optimism sense that Jack and I talk about, but in the Voltaire optimism. The Voltaire optimism is like we live in the best of all possible worlds or like the, the future is, mm, is – the, the pan-gloss optimism. Yeah, the pan-gloss optimism. Like the, the future will be better just because. And and that's not the optimism that Jack and I talk about. We talk about like mm, the future will be yeah. better because people choose to make it better if they want to. Which, to, to be fair to Voltaire, he was making fun of that. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, and um, great book. Yeah, he was making fun of that. So So – there was that air. There was simultaneously this immense amount of trauma in Western Europe after the war with the rise of secular statism and communism. 
in addition to the techno- rising technological capabilities, in addition to the loss of the church and the f- downfall of like ch- the church and the belief systems. And mm-hmm. at the same time, in addition to all of this, <clears throat> you have the rise of the psychological and psychoanalytic schools, which are also trying to bring um, understanding to this deeper complex web of the human psyche. And so you have this profoundly um, disjointed sense of like large scale capabilities with a profound void of like existential large scale meaning in like a larger sort of, so to speak, cosmological plan or purpose um, or meaning or intentionality. Mm, mm. And so, yeah, I agree with everything that you just said, but it's, it's this kind of like there's this complex web of like interacting, seemingly contradictory. We have this rise of immense human capability at the same time that it's also revealing like, well, we've lost these institutions that gave our parents and grandparents a place in the universe. I guess we're... So th- this this could certainly be a case of me overreading, but when you describe those things, I see those largely as these institutions we've lost were links we had to the unconscious creative impulse, yeah, to a a life other than that of the conscious, yeah, and we've been fair. losing those. So part part of this yeah, is I because in my own life, I've found a significant degree of happiness in rediscovering my my ability to create things. So th- this podcast is part of that, but also in writing things. Yeah. So yeah, my, my personal situation will of course color this, but yeah, in those things you listed, I, I tend to just see the fundamental problem as it's just more unmoorings from this creative drive that I, I yeah, feel is so innate to in humans. that, in that way, it's like the religiosity or the connection to like a mythos or, that tradition is also like this kind of anchoring to the creative mm. unconscious. Yeah, this wellspring. Out of which emanates like our ability to actually engage in like not only like literature but also like community on some, some level. And it is important. So, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get back on my soapbox. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you down and force white pills down your throat, listener, whether you like it or not. <laughs> that <laughs> so you can you have the capacity to create things, whether you think you do or not. And creativity is it's a skill and a habit, and you get better at it, and it gets easier, and it makes you feel good in a a very very fundamental sense. That's if if you're not creating things or you feel stuck in your life, just try each day creating something very small, even if it's something as tiny as you see something on the street, try to imagine to yourself how you'd describe it to someone who'd never seen it in such a way that they would see the same thing that you've seen. It can be something as small as that. Just try to make something or create something each day and you will start to feel better. It's in the same way that when people start exercising, their relationship to their body changes and they feel so much better in a deep sense 
I really I really regard creativity as as the the psychic analog to that to getting jacked. <laughs> I I would go even further. I would say that like uh, or like not further, but I'm going to say yes end to that, Jack. Like <clears throat> all the stuff that I said earlier in this uh, long rambling conversation about qualia. So again, just a reminder, like qualia is the components of subjectivity. So the redness of a red light, what it feels like to touch a cold surface. Like I would say that if you take the the totality of all of those um, qualia, that is your mind. Like your mind is essentially the composition of all those qualia mm. components. And some of them are qualia that correspond to like some interaction with the external world, such as like the feeling of um, your chest expanding when you breathe. But some of them are qualia that correspond to internal things, such as like the discursive thought that arises in your mind, like that is a qualia as well. <clears throat> well, the fundamental problem at the heart of neuroscience, psychology, philosophy of mind is that when we look from the outside in at a physical, like the physical object of a person's brain, whether or not they're dead or alive, but even like under anesthetics, we see some tissue and maybe if we've got some electrons, electrodes plugged in, we can detect some patterns of firing. But thus far, it is no indicate like we have no theory that links how that brain is having this has this domain of qualia, of the, these things that correspond to like internal experiences, third world objects, physical mm. characteristics of their environment, and not only are they having qualia, but they can use those qualia to transform the world around them, such as like creating a theory about electromagnetism and then all of a sudden like making lights possible. Like we have, mm -hmm. there's no link there. And all I'll say is that whatever the link is, it won't be a passive link. This is not like when you see uh, like light radiating out of like an LCD screen, like that's a passive process. I'd say like we're just shooting some electrical currents through like a diode and it's and it's emitting light at a certain frequency. This is not the same thing. This is like mm. your your brain is having some electrical activity and it's a, it's a computer of a certain sort, but it's generating something. In other words, like it's a creative process. So what I'm saying is like the the literal fundamental thing that you are is like your creative process, like the actual subjectivity of your mind instantiated in a physical object, your brain is a creative process. Your brain is actually creating, generating, or if you want to use the like the the simulation like metaphor, like it's simulating a world in which it's it has a, a model of, of of your own body in in physical 3D space. But mm. that is it's not just like it's not like if you study neuroscience you go and study something like the eye or the ear. So you take the ear, you have like a compression wave, which is energy, like kinetic energy of the air molecules, hits your tympanic membrane, right? So there's physical processes. That tympanic membrane like agitates some nerves in your ear. Okay, now at that point, 
what your your body is doing is 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 translating that physical signal into an electrical signal, and it's sending that electrical signal up into like your neocortex. Okay, at that point, you might be saying, okay, this is still a passive process because all we're doing is we're doing like uh, signal transduction. But at some point, that still doesn't explain what the qualia are because the link between mm. like in, we'd say in like electrical engineering, like hardware and software, there's actually a jump from the electrical signals to like the level of the operating system. You can't understand an operating system by just looking at the electrodes of the chip. You actually have to have a theory of like how a chip can be put mm. into correspondence with like a random access machine, which is a mathematical object and these sorts of things. So we have this theory for operating systems and the link between operating systems and the hardware for the things that we've created, but we have no link well, how do we connect this signal transduction of like that's supposed to correspond to like some airwaves to like, okay, you actually are now generating this qualia of me talking in your ear right now, the actual subjectivity of that. That's a creative process. So actually the very most fundamental thing that humans are, uh, we are a creative process. And insofar as like our education systems, our political systems, or like just our culture at large, suppresses people engagement with creativity they're actually suffocating your humanity they're suffocating the very thing that it is to be human which is is creativity is being suffocated by any cultural tropes or any institutions that say like you have to think a certain way you have to solve already solved problems and just spit out solutions you have to regurgitate information that's already been produced by somebody else all of those things are actually like preventing you from engaging with the one thing that actually makes humans different from every other thing in the known universe, which is the ability to create mm. new things. Yeah. And the thing is that capacity, no matter how atrophied, is still there. It it doesn't leave you. You can find it again. Yeah, it's it's like a remembering. Like so I think that's basically like the modern spiritual problem we've we've gone over that and, and if you're listening to this and you think like jack's an exception or whatever because he's got it like it's he's not an exception this like this i want to just refute like my what i just said my spiel just then i think is that if you meditate on it long enough you will realize that it's a direct refutation of the idea that there's creative people and there's non-creative people it's a false idea it's a false theory because everybody is creative the very notion of having a subjective experience is a creative act and so you're creative everybody that you know is creative and that creativity is expressed in different forms in the form of jackets you know his literary writing in the form of a chef it's creating flavors and like culinary experiences that he or she and the people that they're serving have not had before that's also a creative act so go find the creativity that resonates for you but it's been suppressed and I think like the awakening up or the awakening of like our generation or like the generation after us will correspond to basically more people like coming out of that haze, that suppression and actually like getting in touch with and, and not just getting in touch with but actually, actually being creative because not being passively receptacle, passive receptacles but actually being creative generative people. Yeah, yeah, not being there, there is a real deadening effect to having to go through the rote steps of being told a problem with a defined solution, finding the defined solution, being patted on the head, 
and then the rest of the time distracting yourself. Drugs or porn or, or relationships or... Yeah, anyway, it's... So what, what Jung said was the thing causing us to be unhappy, I'd largely agree with. I think he, I think he got that pretty right. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the fact that he saw into this... I wonder if he was disheartened when he passed away that probably... I'm not sure when he passed away, at least when he was writing. I've, a lot of these essays are very optimistic. Yeah, I guess that's good. That's He's got a good constitution of character because... I could imagine that a lot of people would be very disheartened to like work on a problem their entire life and then by all like indications have not changed the world in their lifetime. But maybe Jung's ideas The thing will... is, and this is why I'm such a big yeah, book books are only a vector through which this happens that True. You know, I happen to like them a lot. But I mean he he died, but these ideas he generated are still as alive as they were when he wrote them. Yeah, and then you've got somebody like, like Jordan we, Peterson. We, 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 have, we have read, like, we have downloaded into our subjectivities his ideas, and now we are, we're broadcasting them using a technology that he couldn't have imagined. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. It, take, it just takes time, doesn't it, really, with these things? Yeah. And I, I think, like, with regards to, like, why do some, like, the, the question of um, why do ideas spread? I've been thinking a lot about that one recently. And uh, I've come up with a number of reasons why ideas can spread. Some ideas can spread because they're true, like physically true, like I know Maxwell's equations are true and then mm-hmm. therefore they're useful. Maxwell's true equations, yeah. <laughs> as, as elucidated by Don Paris, PhD. <laughs> and, and so they're useful, so I can take his ideas and I can use them to manipulate copper and magnets and stuff and create electricity and do stuff with it. There's also ideas that spread because of not so wholesome reasons, like fear. Like you can spread an idea by making people scared, and so because they're scared, they'll spread the idea um, to like alleviate their fear or to like you know get other people to conform to like a particular action. You can get an idea to spread through authority. You can get an idea to spread because it's funny. You can get an idea to spread mm-hmm. because. Uh, it speaks to something like um, existential, like in, in like like helps them find meaning. Like I think some of the stuff around cults and stuff like speaks to that part of the human mind. Um, and I think like <clears throat> one important reason why Jung's ideas spread or are spreading or have spread and why we're spreading them now is not necessarily because they're true per se or they contain truth it's not because they're completely correct but it's because they're like they're addressing a real problem that a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about yeah yeah and doing it in good faith and i would say with with how true they are or not in the in insofar as a book for example is a window into into whatever is exterior to humans and depending on how how much it corresponds to that truth or not, probably to an extent how clear that window is or how coloured it is. I do think it, like it is a window onto something real. Yeah. He, he might not have gotten, and I, I'm almost certain he hasn't gotten everything right, but like it is a window looking upon something that's true. It's pointing in the right direction. It's really cool. I think that... If uh, if you are experienced, if you're a Westerner, or even if you're just 
not even if you're a Westerner, but if you're just a person out there in the world, hello, um, who can like see in their own life or at least in the culture around them, like this thing that Jung's talking about, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, I would very strongly like recommend picking up this book and at least thinking through his ideas. I don't know if in some ways he doesn't really give an answer about where to next, but I think his diagnosis is a first place to start when you want to like work on an issue is like diagnose it properly. Yeah, and I do think there's value to having these ideas in your head that you can then start start thinking through. Cuz that that itself is valuable because I find quite often I'll get these I'll come across certain ideas. I won't be thinking about them consciously, but then a few days or a few weeks or a few months later an idea or a realization based on those ideas will <laughs> become apparent. You called to me. it you called it a brainworm before we got to start recording. Brainworm. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> or a mindworm. Yeah. Get some fucking Yeah, it just pops a, up. A lot of the mindworms we cover on this podcast are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we and definitely the function of us engaging with them is to make fun of them but like a lot of the I, the brain worms in 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 um in jung's are probably worth like getting some exposure to <laughs> yeah and also i you don't necessarily know where something valuable will come from there are certain places where it's more likely to come from than others but i think broadly speaking actually a lot of popular culture or received wisdom is not a great judge of whether some idea will be useful to you or not or valuable yeah. to you or not. Yeah. And so okay, it's it's fun to pick books that like, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to agree with and can make fun of. But a lot of the time too, I'm more sincerely actually looking for new ideas that will be useful. You're foraging in the ideascape. Yeah, I'm foraging. I'm, I've got my snout in the <laughs> leaf litter. Truffle pig. Flicking stuff. Flicking through white nationalist literature. <laughs> Looking for truffles. <laughs> mind truffles. That's me. <laughs> Looking for mind truffles <laughs> in leaf litter. I'm just a happy pig. Uh, so good. Yeah. Should we wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. This has been a particularly long this? episode. <laughs> yeah, this has been a very long episode, and with a lot more of us ranting than usual. Sorry, and I don't know we normally do out. rant quite a bit. I think there's something about Jung that makes people rant. Maybe this is, explains why Jordan Peterson is the way he is. Just, this is what happened to Jordan Peterson. You just Peterson. get incepted the by mind, Jung. The mind virus is in us. We're going to be Jordan Peterson within five we'll years. We'll come into like new age, like... Uh, like soapbox ranting or we're already doing that but we'll actually have a sizable audience and can start influencing young men to make their bed <laughs> oh yeah if i could have jordan peterson's audience that'd be really good oh, yeah. if i could have one tenth of that guy's audience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that'd be great yeah so new direction for the podcast we are both going to try to become jordan peterson <laughs> and we're going to interview each other Every episode. It's going to be Jordan Peterson interviewing Jordan Peterson. Peterson For three hours. Six hours. Every week. Every week. Straight mind virus into your fucking ears. That's our... I'm not not going to say that's our promise to you. I'm not going to promise that. But that's that's the goal. But you've got to keep your promises. Because if you can't keep your promises to yourself, then what good is your word for anybody else? (laughs) 
in terms of this book, I, I think actually reading all of it, I'd recommend reading all of it, but specifically reading the stages of life, psychology and literature, uh, the modern spiritual problem plus minus psychotherapists or the clergy is really valuable. And each individual essay is not all that long. Uh, you can you can read it in a day or two, uh, depending how long you spend sitting down with it. It's really good stuff. Yeah, don't worry. We'll return to some fucking horrible book that we hate. It makes us want to pull, it, pull our oh, fucking eyes out. This oh. week we recorded Eonic Futurism, so... Like, <laughs> don't worry, there's plenty of stuff we won't like. Didn't he quote Jung? No, no, he didn't. No, no, I doubt he... I don't think he quoted Jung. He was too busy quoting Planet of the Apes. All right. Well, I I highly recommend picking it up, give it a read, Mm. Um, and thanks for listening. Next episode, actually, we've got something in a very similar vein to Jung. We've got Raw Egg Nationalist. (laughs) 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 Book Club from Hell will remain hellish. Don't worry. Yeah, we just came up for air for, like, one episode. Don't worry, we'll go back down <laughs> to the fucking... Sometimes the we do accidentally circle. come across something that we really end up the enjoying. The ninth so. circle of literary hell with uh, raw egg nationalism. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that was a really fun episode.